Welcome to the Good Times Are Killing Us podcast, where we explore the history, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the most controversial people, movements, and organizations in our modern world. We'll tell you the story, and then we'll give you our take. It's your boy Marquise, as usual, and I'm joined by K-Town. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. And David? Hello, hello, hello! And today we are talking about Japan, part two! We're back! We're back, baby! This is uh, our third two-parter ever. We're continuing the entire history of Japan, and this one... It's gonna be a doozy, baby. No, this is a really lighthearted episode, guys. We got we got Hello Kitty, we got Tamagotchi, Pokemon, Digimon, Sony, Panasonic, Samsung. We're gonna talk about all of We're that. We're just gonna skip over all that fucking imperialistic propaganda that the West came up with. And pretend none of that happened, okay? Nah, we're just going to take it easy. We're not talking about any of that stuff. <laughs> no, we're doing the exact opposite of that. We're talking about <laughs> the heaviest, worst shit ever. Right off the top, we got to say, most of this episode is going to be just some cool history shit, but it's going to get pretty fucking dark about halfway through. I want to cut my arm off. <laughs> hey, hey, you should have been at Unit 731. Uh, but before we cut our arms off or anything, please, let's talk about our following us on our socials, on Facebook at the Good Times Are Killing Us Podcast, on Instagram at Good Times Killing Us Podcast, and on the Twitter at Good underscore Times underscore Dead. Also, make sure to give us a rating re- review on Apple iTunes, five stars, and uh, tell us what you think. Tell us what you want to talk about, any topics or any movies you want us to spoil. Yeah, leave us a review, send us a message at Good Times Killing Us at gmail.com if you got if you want to complain if you want to suggest things whatever let's start a dialogue we here for you baby yeah we want to have a parasocial relationship with you people yeah fuck you <laughs> <laughs> all right so you know usually we start off our episodes talking about like where are we all coming in with this episode before we actually got into the research but this is a two-parter so i think we're just going to continue off where we left off on our last episode sounds good to me all right, so we're going to kind of backtrack just a little bit um, into some of the interaction between Japan and uh, the United States in the mid-19th century. But if you want to know the entire history of Japan and you haven't listened to the first episode, you might want to listen to that. Just check it out. It's a light one. Yeah, yeah. It, comparatively to this, it's much lighter. All right, so are we ready to get into Japan Part 2? All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, the U.S. Navy arrived in Japan in 1853, and it was the Commodore Matthew Perry who strong-armed the shogunate leadership into finally signing a treaty that would open up Japan to international trade. However, the daimyos, the samurai lords of the country, were infuriated with their own leadership submission to the West. Yeah, these pussies named the Commodore? Like, you ain't got no daimyos or fucking samurai? You got a Commodore coming over here? Hey, the daimyos didn't see those gunships, bro. They were built different. <laughs> Commodore Matthew Perry is just rolling up like, I've got guns, Japan. I'll He's got a them. slack it jaw kind of... due to uh, noble house inbreeding for fucking 20 <laughs> centuries. And... Yeah, they've been locked in, baby, you know? Yeah, I mean, the daimyos and the samurai were not fucking with this. And a big part of that was because Japan was actually very aware of the mass colonization going on throughout the world on behalf of European and U.S. nations especially with the opium wars in China, which resulted in England's seizure of Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, China got kind of disrespected, and they saw that, you know. Yeah, they were like, we're not going to be them boys. You're not going to get us on a bunch of, like, opium and then take a whole city from us. That, yeah. that shit is crazy, Dude, that, man. They're like, oh, drug and take a city. Okay, okay, I mean, noted. The, the CIA did it in the 80s. Yeah, honestly. It's the exact same they, type of thing. They invented fucking crack. Mm, baby. 
So while the daimyos and samurai resented the shogun's submission to the West, scholarly nobles that had been studying Dutch texts around European Enlightenment-era advancements in science, politics, art, and philosophy were much more eager to westernize the country, probably in no small part because Western ideologies tend to favor leaders of business, scholarship, and politics, as opposed to like military leaders, which was significantly at odds with the dictatorship that Japan had now lived in for, what, 700 years? So it was a bunch of capitalistic soy boys... Being like, mm, I want to sit in a banker's chair and not fucking sword fight for my life. Yeah, and the samurai were not happy about that at all. Although it's crazy to me is that like the shogun himself did, he was cool with this. It was the daimyos and the samurai who were not having it. That's weird that the shogun was like, yeah, this is alright. Yeah, because the shogun, ain't, come the shogun ain't fighting, he's sitting on a throne. True, I guess. Yeah. And they haven't really had to fight like that for like 250 years yeah, anyway. He, he ain't doing shit. He forgot what it's like to get, yeah. you know, for people to come for your head. I guess I forgot where I came from. Nah, <laughs> nah, nah, nah. Wait till I get my katana right. Nah, 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 nah. Then my shogun can't tell me nothing, right? <laughs> So while the social elites of Japan were embracing their new trade partners, the daimyos and the samurai were attempting to spark rebellions against the westernization of Japan, which resulted in the Bushin War. I like that name, Bushin. Mm. Bushin uh, sounds like a sh uh, like a the sheen off of a butt cheek, like a butch <laughs> a, bo a booty sheen, <laughs> Bushin. Wow. Unfortunately for the warrior class of Japan, the Bushin War and all loosely associated rebellions failed to overtake the imperial forces, which were also supported by the British, who were providing them with much more industrialized military power than the daimyo and samurai could basically afford. They were outgunned. Yeah, completely. Although it's interesting because, like, uh, like contrary to popular belief in, like, movies and particularly The Last Samurai, like, this whole period, um, the samurai did not really fight with swords. They only fought with swords when, like, they did not have any bullets left in their guns. So this, uh, this conflict was also interesting because um, England and America were both kind of, like, helping, like, uh, the, the Western factions or the, the Western sympathizers in Japan. Um, so interestingly enough, a lot of the guns that came from America were actually from the Civil War, wow. which would occur just a couple years before. That's wild. Dude. You, gotta do, like, you gotta do something with them. Yeah, yep, like, we yep. got a bunch of guns left over. Oh, you guys are wanna have a war with some guns? We got some of these <laughs> leftover guns. We're good now. <laughs> just America, you're like, look, we have the guns. That, that should just be like our, like our Arby's like, ad. It, it's literally been us since then. We like, have the guns. <laughs> We may not have the best education system. We may not have the best infrastructure, Bitch, the we best strapped. democracy, the best uh, healthcare system, but we got the best guns, bitch. <laughs> Plenty of them. So after the Bushin War, the 700-year-old shogunate had finally fallen. And samurai were stripped of their rights to open care of their swords. They were given a mediocre cash payout for the services and were pretty much relegated to being a useless relic of the past as the new Japanese military began to train under the guidance of Westerners. Damn, yeah, so you tell me JG Wentworth was 877 cash now and they ass? <laughs> they gave they, Yeah, they just, just gave him some money out. and told him to fuck off. They were like, yeah, yeah, this is your severance package. <laughs> yeah, he's just and, uh, uh, We wish you the best. The yeah. End of an era. Aww. Yeah. But still, and this will be important later, the influence of that classical samurai Bushido philosophy would continue to be a major ideological force in the Japanese military. And, you know, so like even though like they're becoming westernized, they're using they're use they're like wearing different uniforms, they're fighting with guns now, they still kinda had that Bushido like death before dishonor type of energy. Yeah, instead of being like kill yourself. 
in a ritualistic way, I now want you to fly a, a giant airplane into a fucking building. <laughs> we're we gonna be getting there, the baby. Fuck up. Yeah, that warrior spirit still uh, still bled through. Yeah. On the heels of such great conflict, the Japanese elite wanted to modernize their country as quickly as possible to compete with the West. So they modeled a new system of government and military off of European nations, particularly Germany's, and adopted their own industrial revolution at an incredibly fast rate. This time period is referred to as the Meiji Restoration, named after Emperor Meiji, whose name literally means enlightened peace. Yeah, they, they, the Meiji Restoration. This shit was crazy. They're like, oh, we got to get on our shit. Yeah, I mean, the, a real. We I mean, to modernize this whole fucking. This whole motherfucker. They're like, look, katanas are cool and all, but like, that is literally what we need. We need those guns, baby. Yeah, yeah. We yeah, got they, a lot they built, of work. They, to do. they built the, uh, the light rail. Um, the magnet train. <laughs> um, all, all in the 1800s. They, they, yeah. had, they, had, they had Gundams. They were ready. The thing is that, like, you know, a lot of countries, you know, had to go through this period, you know, like, just like our Industrial Revolution. The really crazy thing is the amount of time that fucking Japan did yeah. it in. They really hit this shit in a couple decades, like, you know. Yeah, because countries like the United States, England, and France, like, industrial, like, they were, those were, like, the original kind of, like, super industrialized countries that kind of did that factory system and basically modernized and changed the landscape of all society. Um, but, like, in most of a- most Asian countries, they were like not fucking with the West at all. They had wanted nothing to do with that. Um, but then at some point, Japan was the country who was like, "Look, we can't run anymore. So if you can't beat them, join them." And they became the first like fully industrialized modern nation in all of Asia. Yeah, they were fucking locked off for 250 years, and then just was like <laughs> just vamped up and got yeah. industrialized. Yeah, they in like 20, 30 years. Yeah, exactly. It's really crazy, shit. dude. <laughs> It's like like being in a coma and then coming out and running a marathon. Like they were like, yeah, 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 pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> getting a boxing match or yeah. something, just being like, winning hey, a, what's up? <laughs> yeah, like coming out of a coma and winning like a dance dance. I'm revolution. coming out of my cage and I've been doing just fine. <laughs> Gotta industrialize the country. <laughs> <laughs> So at this point, it's worth mentioning that while Japan had adjusted to the threat of European colonization by unifying under a new system of government, China was in the middle of a massive civil war as their country had completely splintered apart when they had confronted European colonization. Yeah, China's going the fuck through it right now. They're having a huge breakup. Yeah, pretty much. Having yeah, heroin withdrawals. Yeah, yeah, Dude, yeah. that's so wild. Like, England was just like, yo, get fucked up. And then we're going to kill you. Yeah, like, like China would take all these drugs. And it was all for tea. They wanted to get more tea, but China was taxing them too hard. So they were like, all right, we can just fuck around and, get, like, addict your people to opium. <laughs> like, yeah. that is so, dude, man. That's an episode in itself. It really is, yeah. Um, so after centuries of being considered a marginal nation below China, Japan experienced a massive boost in nationalism now that they had seized their place as the dominant superpower in the East above their former big brother nation. Well, it's so it's kind of like you love your brother, you look up to him, even though you kind of want to kick his ass sometimes. And then one time you guys are out at the park and you see some dude just beat the shit out of him. Some dude who's not much stronger than you, you think. You're like, I could have take that dude. And you start looking at your brother sideways now. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really good analogy for you this. Know? Yeah. Japan perceived their success amid the chaos in China as evidence that they were not only a stronger and richer country, but that they were an inherently better race of people. Yeah, they done already blew the Mongols away with a fucking hurricane, like, and now they're coming out of a 200-year coma just, like, fully fucking erect. Fully torched. Fucking six feet tall. 
And China's over here smoking fucking heroin. Yeah. Getting I mean, slapped around. By, what are they supposed know? to think? Yeah. So with a combination of supranationalist propaganda in Japan and the desire to make their power and presence known to their new Western allies, Japan decided to take advantage of China's disunity by reiterating to- Toyotomi Hideyoshi's attempted invasion of China 250 years before. And in 1894 and 1895, they invaded and conquered the surrounding nations of the Ryukyu Islands, Taiwan, and Korea in what is known as the First Sino-Japanese War. We're coming for you, China. This is it. Yeah. So just like... All that time just came out, yeah, fully torqued, immediately. Now that Japan had become a more dominant force throughout Asia, they aided their European allies in the Boxer Rebellion between 1899 and 1901, which was a Chinese resistance movement against European influence in Yehetuan. So basically, they're like, look, we we saw how you you kind of like updated our culture, so we got your backs, y'all. We're on y'all. We're on y'all side. Don't worry. We're not. We have no connection or care for other Asian people in our continent. Basically, so why was it called the Boxer Rebellion? So this is interesting. Apparently, like it was called the Boxer Rebellion because, like, the Chinese, like, they would kind of like, uh, it was supposed to be like a kind of um, like a like a rude thing to kind of like mention how they were better at boxing, basically, because like they had these ancient Chinese martial arts and they were like, look, you all know that we always beat you in boxing matches. We'll see y'all in the streets in a war, but oh. it didn't really work out so well for them. Uh, but it was, so it did come from literal boxing, from giving hands. Yeah, so I don't know if maybe to start off with just, like, some European guy, like, nah, shit, put your, put your, give the old one, two, and then some put Chinese dude just, like, <gasps> just, like, nails him. Just hit him with the one I'll punch. do that one more time again? I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> <laughs> that that could have gotten real bad. So, <laughs> we're not gonna do it, guys. We're not gonna do the accents. We're not doing them. We ain't them, boys. Cut it out. Stop, Stop it. Asking me yeah. enough. Every time on the street, people are asking us to do accents, and we're not. Nope, nope. So a few years later, in 1904, Japan dug even deeper into Russian-backed Manchuria and successfully won another war, yet again winning another armed conflict against two significant world powers, basically at the same time. Yeah, so can you? they're feeling themselves, and can you blame yeah. them? Yeah, so to summarize, Japan had their country closed off for over 200 years, but after just 10 years of fighting to spread their empire and winning every time, they started to really believe in their hearts and minds that they were an unstoppable, heavenly ordained nation. You're like, yo, we're just built different, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, we're just built different. Shit. This is easy. Shit. <laughs> what was we doing on this island? Yeah, we should have opened this shit up a long time ago. This could all be ours. Yeah. Um, all right, so y'all ready to get into World War One, baby? I suppose. All right, so while Japan had only loose relationships with Western nations after opening up their borders, they became official allies with England after the Russo-Japanese War because the British were technically against the Russians as well. So now Japan finally had an actual military alliance with another colonizing global superpower. So technically they did fight in World War One. Yeah, we out here, yeah. They're like, yeah, people, you know, Japan is like, hey, you guys got to recognize us. I mean, you got China? Yeah, for China. that shit that would happen in China a couple years back, the Boxer Rebellion. Woke up out the coma, took China down, came, and and then Russia as well. Yeah, we heard you you got some Russian problems. Hey, same here, baby. And and you don't fuck with them, neither do we. Yeah, so when England had entered the First World War in 1914, they asked Japan to help ward off their German enemies in Tsangtao, which was just south of Japanese-occupied territory in China. Though the Germans weren't able to put up much of a fight in Tsangtao, this is apparently where the two forces, though technically pitted against each other, developed a strange mutual respect for one another, and of course, more on what came of that later. 
Yeah, yeah, it's actually really weird when the when the Japanese after the surrender of the city and when the Japanese soldiers entered the city, the German soldiers actually like saluted them or like they gave them showed them some sign of respect uh, as they entered the city. And then as the British entered the city, they turned they literally turned their backs to them as yeah, if to be like, yeah. "Pardon my back, uh, Britain, pardon my back." Like as an ultimate sign of disrespect. Dude, you know what I just realized that like if I ever went to a restaurant and it was like a Japanese German fusion restaurant, Ooh. I would not feel comfortable in that restaurant at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, look, y'all are great. There's when something. You're... There's something going on. <laughs> y'all are great apart, but together, no. I'm looking at I'll, you a little sideways, yeah. sitting down, getting my bratwurst sushi, and I'm just like, there's something, something, something not good about this. <laughs> but they were definitely like, that was the first time of like, hey, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna exchange numbers, we're gonna link later. It is interesting though because like apparently when Japan had first kind of like formed their westernized government, they modeled it actually in a big way after Germany's because Germany was kind of like a similar country in that they kind of had this like rich nationalist history, but they were a little bit slow to industrialize. So they kind of had like this kind of in between sort of democratic republic that wasn't quite on par with like France, England, yada yada, but like. It was it was something else, and that's you know again more on that later. So while the Japanese did not really participate, oh, oh yeah. So while the Japanese did not really participate in much greater a degree in World War One, they were recognized as the most dominant military superpower in Asia, and their alliance with England allowed them to be able to join the League of Nations, the precursor to the UN, whose main goal was basically to solve problems between major nations through diplomacy and bureaucracy, rather than wind up in another catastrophic world war. Yeah, it's just a big uh, group of different uh, countries and nations where are like, hey, we're not going to take over the yeah, world. Yeah, I mean, it, it worked out really well, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did It did get a, a good amount of people together, you know? I mean, I mean, but yeah, I guess it's it like did. We're, we're the Avengers of nations, and we're going to keep the peace. Yeah. I think, all right, so I think the League of Nations is more like the Justice League, uh, and okay. the United oh, yeah. Nations are the Avengers. Okay, yeah. Right. yeah. Okay, I got it. I like yeah. it. Okay, yeah, yeah, true, true, true. Okay. Oh, yeah, because it's cooler. <laughs> just better. Because yeah. yeah. it's just better. Yeah, 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 definitely. Exactly. <laughs> yes, good point, yeah. Um, uh, a little over a decade after World War One and joining the League of Nations, Japan had been rocked by the Great Depression during the middle of a major population boom, which caused many of its citizens to lo start to lose faith in Japan's westernized political system. Pro-military groups began to become more politically involved, resulting in several far-right terrorist attacks against Japanese officials, eventually resulting in the assassination of Prime Minister Hamaguchi. Yeah, they're like, dude, we're fucking, we're losing out now. I think it's because of all that westernization you guys wanted to do. We should have stuck to our roots, and this is y'all's fault. Yeah, all those powdered wigs, like. Yeah, we didn't want to wear these stupid wigs. Yeah. <laughs> like, Did you imagine people were, were still wearing powdered <laughs> wigs in like the fucking thirties? <laughs> dude, I think they, in they, England the yeah, Parliament still, still, still wears wear those wigs. I think the Parliament. Oh does. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's yeah. England. They that's gotta fucking wild. It's to hide their teeth. Yeah. <laughs> 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 look at my stupid hair. Don't look at my teeth. <laughs> Hello, governor. Don't look at my teeth. Look at my stupid hair. Go Look ahead, at nice. my stupid wig. <laughs> Is my wig pressed and pound for the parliament session? It must be bow tie proper. So I kind of feel Japan. They're kind of like, I don't want them part of this. Yeah, bullshit. what the fuck is this? So throughout the early 1930s, Japan, pro-military groups would seize more and more power throughout the country, which actually saw by and large support by the Japanese citizens who felt like it was the right thing to do to secure not only the economy and Japanese expansion, but also the, cl the classical Japanese culture, which they felt had been diluted since the Meiji Restoration. I'll steal in our goddamn roots. Yeah, so it's basically like it was like a make Japan 
and great again movement. Yeah, magi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so during the rise of more right-wing nationalist factions in Japan, the Japanese military began moving more forces into China and initiating more attempts to expand the territory even deeper into the nation. So, so basically what happens is like they join the League of Nations... Um, the League of Nations is like, yeah, don't invade anywhere, but they're like, but we're on, like, we're fully torqued for the military right yeah, now. Yeah, we're big boys now, and this is what y'all did. Yeah, but what if we did invade some? <laughs> but what, what if we just we... invade some shit anyway? Yeah. yeah. What if we just didn't give a the shit? The Chinese aren't peoples. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're going to get into that soon. Yeah, it, so Japan's expansion to China infuriated their allies in the League of Nations, since the entire point of the League was to prevent any sort of world domination-style conflicts, like Japan was once again attempting, but Japan felt like this was very hypocritical for all these other European superpowers to tell them they couldn't continue their colonization efforts, since countries like England and the United States in particular had gained so much of their power by doing the exact same thing. Yeah, they're like, this is how you guys all got here, what? So now that we're in the league with the big boys, you're yeah. telling us that we gotta keep our spot and know our place? I they're, don't know. They're looking over there, yo, how the fuck did y'all get Texas, bro? <laughs> like, we saw y'all got Texas just a few years ago. <laughs> like, it was Mexico. <laughs> In response to the League's complaints, Japan simply left in March of 1933, and Germany, now under the power of Adolf Hitler, followed suit by leaving the League by October of that same year. So it was just a pow-pow, Japan-Germany, out. Yeah, hey, we're out you, this bitch. You think uh, Hitler got raped in prison? I hope. I mean, yeah, I hope so. I don't. I don't think. I don't think he did. I don't think. I don't think the. I think the prison system probably in like 19 like tens or twenties oh, Germany. They were raping, bro. You know, I think you it was think probably they were raping in there. I I, th I bet you it was probably better than pri in U.S. prisons today. <laughs> the conditions, nah, I don't yeah, know. Probably, yeah. It's probably just more of a dungeon. But Hitler you know. wouldn't last a fucking second in a U.S. prison today. Are you kidding me? You don't I, think you don't think the Aryan Brotherhood would just be like, well, yeah, obviously you're a boy. Then again, I don't know. Yeah, because they be they be like texting and on TikTok in prison now too. So I have no idea what's going yeah, on. Yeah, what is there. it with that? That is I have wild, no dude. idea, dude. That I'm makes like, no sense. What to is me. going on? This shit is crazy. Uh, so continuing on with World War II, uh, by 1937, the same year that Italy, under the control of Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini... Notoriously strong-jawed man. strong jaw. Um, so after Mussolini had also left the League of Nations, Japan would officially begin their next great military push into China that same year, and what follows is one of the darkest chapters not only in Japanese history, but world history as a whole, which is known as the Second Sino-Japanese War. Hey, Editing Mark here. Just wanted to give you listeners a bit of a heads up. This next part of the episode heads to some pretty dark territory, so we figured we should pop in a trigger warning for anyone who may be sensitive to subject matters such as mutilation, rape, torture, and just a range of other dehumanizing topics. If you want to skip some of the most gruesome parts and meet us on the other side of the woods, we pick back up at around an hour and six minutes, so you can meet us around there. Okay? Okay. Okay, so this part I will say, before we get into this, this is about to be a big chunk of this episode. How much did y'all really know about this shit before we did this? Where I think this is where we can do this segment. Holy shit. Like, basically, small to none. I know I had heard... Like, um, I'd heard of the term the rape of Nanking, and I'd heard, you know, that the Japanese were pretty brutal in World War II, you know, about the kamikazes and stuff. I was mostly mm -hmm. thinking about that. But some of the details of the shit, no, I did not know almost any of this, dude. This is all, like, almost new information to me. Um, what's that, what's that film about Unit uh, 747? 
Uh, fuck. Um, uh, men of the like something. Men sun. of the of the uh, the falling sun. I think it was like an inversion of rising sun. But anyway, it, I I saw that like ten years ago, and okay. like I I mean I I'm, I've always been like a really big history buff, so like I've I've known about it. I've never done an extensive dive as much as we have for this, but like men behind the sun. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, I kind of came from similar, uh, a similar <laughs> thing. More for me, just being interested in, like, morbid, like, crazy stuff in general from the past. I did know a little bit about this, but I will say, when I discovered this stuff, like, a few years ago, I was, like, shocked because I was like, wow, I never learned about any of this shit in high school. I only knew Hello Kitty. Yeah, like, this is, <laughs> this is like, we're kind of in, like, Holocaust-tier war crime atrocities when we're going to be talking about well, this. Well, it's, I mean... It's the same thing with, like, it, it didn't affect America, so it, it's not taught to us. Yeah, this yeah. is not the shit. You don't learn about this shit in school. Yeah. Not in our public schools. Not in American public schools. It's yeah. changing, though. I will say that, that a lot of that is really changing. It's a lot. It's a big controversial topic in the world of teaching, is uh, is teaching critical race theory, which has, has which digs into critiques of American, of our traditional narratives of history, so. Let's kick it off. All right, so we ready? This is the Second Sino-Japanese War. So it started in 1937 when Japan kickstarted the war by exploiting an incident in which a bridge was bombed near Japanese forces to justify the invasion of Manchuria. So they like they knew they weren't supposed to be getting into it. They just found a bullshit ass reason. Yeah. So this is known as the Marco Polo Bridge Incident, and uh, the details sometimes are a little bit murky on this. But from what I know, when I looked into this, basically what happened. The Japanese were uh, kind of rounded up near this uh, this bridge, and uh, when they were mustering uh, to like you know leave for the day, they were short one of their soldiers, and they went to the gates of the city to ask the, the Chinese soldiers if they could like look through the city, look for their missing soldier. And I guess things words got mixed around and, and tempers flared, and it, it turned into a big thing. Even after the fact, when the soldier turned back up, it was a little too late, and. Uh, they kind of started gearing up for battle, really. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of chest pumping before the first blow. Exactly, and even the mayor of the city ended up having to come out to talk to some of the Japanese forces, and he became very aware of how armed and prepared for battle they were. He so was just he, like, hey, guys, guys, come on. He was like, oh, He's shit. like, oh, these guys are yeah, ready yeah, to yeah, go. Yeah, 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 these guys are ready to fucking ready to shoot him. So uh, he comes back and he tells the people what he saw and this comes to some weird standoff where the Chinese ended up actually shooting first and the Japanese were like, say no more. Fam. Say less on God. Yeah, 100. <laughs> 100. This is terrible. So by the way, there's going to be, we have to, look guys, we got to tell some jokes. We got to get ourselves through it. So, you know, if I, I'm not usually the type of person to say like, you know, like, sorry if you get offended, but sorry if you get offended. This might be a little bit. This might be getting a little bit heavy. So, let's kick it off. So, the invasion of mainland China involved Japan fighting off both nationalist and communist factions in Japan, who had actually been somewhat unified under the leadership of Chiang uh, of Chiang Kai Shek. So, a lot has changed since the civil wars that were going on in the first Sino-Japanese War. But they were like the Chinese military was a little bit more unified, but it was still not the strongest. They had not fully industrialized and nowhere near at the point that Japan had. Yeah, yeah, they weren't still they still weren't exactly ready for this uh, for this battle. But they uh, uh, Chiang Kai Shek he was like, "Hey man, we're holding it. We're not we're not backing down." Yeah. Um, uh-huh. 
yeah. So uh, Japan's military forces. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, <laughs> uh, Japan's military forces, while under the direct banner of fighting for the emperor Hirohito, they were actually operating under a unique decentralized system of military organization that kind of traced back to the old feudal wars of old, where generals just kind of did their own thing. Um, and they're often compared to like feudal warlords. Uh, but they all, even though they're all off doing different things, they were all unified by one common goal to conquer China and kill anybody that stands in the way. That's the bottom fucking line. That's the end goal. And that's, even though, like you said, they're all kind of a little bit fractured in the way they go about things, like uh, demeaning China and, and not taking shit from China or not backing down in any way from China is the bottom line. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's an interesting paradox where it's like, okay, even like by us being a little bit more decentralized, we can kind of unify under a very simple goal instead of like having this like huge, like complex chain of command and, and, and organization. It was just, look, we're just, we're all, we're going to win this country because like we are way better armed. We're like fierce, we have a fierce warrior culture. Just, hey, y'all go and do it. So there was kind of like a lot of renegade uh, generals and officers that were going throughout China around this time period. And this is all to kind of preface the shit that we're about to get into. So in August of 1937, the Japanese had seized Shanghai and decided that they would dig deeper into China by invading the capital of the Republic of China at the time, Nanjing, or as it's more commonly known to us today, Nanking. Yeah. Yeah, Why so, do we have to change every fucking name up? Yeah. How are we gonna say all these names? We like need to you say it easier. Nanjing, like you literally changed one letter over. Nah, brother. Like, no, it's gonna be Nanjing, not Nanjing. After I say Nan, I like to jump straight to a K. I don't like going to a J. Yeah, I, the J's ain't American. There's a K in America. There ain't no J in America, brother. <laughs> ain't no J in America. Except for my Simple moonshine jug. <laughs> Simple as that, brother. Like, it's just it's just wild to me. Like we can't call nothing, nothing what the people call it. Like you know, we got to change everything up. Yeah, I, 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 it's it's always there's always a really convoluted, complex history to all those types of weird mistranslations. I don't really know what the story is, but you know, this event is commonly known as the rape of Nanking. So I think we're just gonna run with Nanking, baby. That's what we gotta do. Sorry, China. I know, I, know yeah, you, I, yeah. know, I know you guys are listening. I know we're on the approved list by uh, Winnie the Pooh, but um, <laughs> well, not, not anymore. All right, so y'all ready to get into the rape of Nanking? Yeah, yeah let's yeah let's get into the rape of Nanking. <laughs> Alrighty, guys. So, the good times are killing us. So. The rape of Nanking, which is what it's known as in history books began in December of 1937 and continued until February of 1938 and resulted in the death of somewhere between 40,000 and 300,000 uh, Chinese civilians being killed. The invasion began with the Japanese forces circling the entire city and offering the Chinese an opportunity to surrender, but China refused, resulting in an outright invasion against the Chinese just completely... They're, in, they're completely inferior fighting forces. They literally chased... Uh, Chinese soldiers from Shanghai all the way to Nanking where they were giving that uh, given that no surrender order from Chiang Kai-shek. Meanwhile, him and his boys got the fuck out of yeah, Dodge. Yeah, they knew what it was, yeah. And yeah. And, and, the, and the Chinese army pretty much knew this was a fucking a, 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 a suicide order, yeah. basically, to hold the city. And a lot of them ended up throwing down their weapons, abandoning their posts, 
uh, even mobbing civilians and stuff, right? To like blend in uh, with civilians and yeah, like, they tearing were, off their uniforms. Like they were terrified when they saw like the extent of the Japanese military, and also like you said, since they had already fleed from Shanghai, they already knew what these guys were onto. Yeah. So some of them, yeah, they were standing tall. They were like, all right, look, I got the shitty musket compared to like what they have. Then you got a bunch of soldiers running from another city coming. They're like, you didn't see what the fuck I saw? Yeah. Ripping their fucking uniforms off. Yeah, they're just like shaking. There's like kids that are like have like a gun and they're just like shaking they're like fuck yeah but apparently like um like the the generals the chinese generals and officers would like shoot anyone that tried to flee they're like nah you're fighting like, yeah. yeah yeah i mean that that was just like a general thing back in the day like yeah the russians did that like they literally sent people out without guns and if you turned around to run from a bullet you got shot i think yeah. it's happened from time to time even with like american the american military yeah. it goes yeah. way back you know kill anyone who tries to defect you know stand yeah. your ground you know exactly which is just an shitty thing yeah but uh by the 13th of december the japanese were effectively in total possession of the city of nanking and after decades of national propaganda that was meant to convince the japanese that they were a superior race of people to the chinese the japanese occupying soldiers completely and utterly dehumanized their chinese captors so it's about to get pretty ugly baby yeah they dehumanized but not like in a bad way like right no, in the, in the <laughs> worst possible way. So uh, to kind of set this up, remember, Japanese ancient warrior culture saw cowardice and surrender as being very dishonorable. I mean, they, they would kill themselves if they even felt like they were being cowards or dishonorable. Yeah. So their response... And was, if while you were killing yourself, it looked like you were hesitating, someone would kill you for you yeah. to preserve your honor. So yeah, this was not... This was a no-go. This cowardice and this surrendering shit... Was a no go for your boy. Yeah, also pussy shit. I mean, most countries, it's it's a pretty accepted thing. Like when you know that you're either going to die or you can surrender, most people surrender. But the Japanese, they just it wasn't like that. I it mean, was, have I, you have you guys ever read uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War? No. I mean that that is so the basic concept of war since about the beginning of our understanding of like tactics and like actual war has been to break the spirit of your enemy to the point where they surrender. Because you can't... War is never fought to completely eradicate anyone. You can't eradicate anyone. Like, normally goals for war are not that. Yeah, because you can't get anything. They're too... Oc- they're and too do enough damage you can occupy, usually. This was, like, a, the complete opposite of that. The Japanese, like, were not following that, like, mindset whatsoever. They wanted to... They didn't just want to win the war. They wanted to completely decimate yeah. and annihilate. And it's the same thing Hitler did with the Jews. Like he wasn't he wasn't just trying to gain power. He literally just wanted to kill everything. I think before we get into what we get into, I think yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And and like we said earlier, this nationalism yeah. that they were having mixed with this warrior code that still lingered through, uh like that they didn't see the chinese as people yeah. at all yeah as a matter of fact uh they notoriously would actually call the chinese logs or maruta in japanese in order to dehumanize them so they could consider like the, the chinese people nothing but just mere objects pieces to be, of wood to be to, cut down yeah 
You know, it was easier for them to get people to do dehumanizing things to them. Yeah, if you dehumanize them. Exactly. So Nanking was decided to be made an example of after the seizure, so as to strike fear throughout the rest of China. So right away during the occupation, the Japanese burned a third of the city to the ground, and then they began ruthlessly murdering and raping Chinese citizens. If you think about it, that that third was the lucky ones, honestly. <laughs> yeah, with what happens next. So the historical event gets its morbid name from the fact that there was an extraordinary amount of rape against the women of the city, including children and the elderly, authorized resulting in the immediate maiming and murdering of rape victims with bayonets and swords after the ordeal. And when husbands and fathers would intervene? They just got fucking shot. They literally were dragging, like, sisters and mothers in front of their brothers and the rest of the family and raping them in front of them. And if you did anything about it, then you got killed. So then the mothers and the daughters, they were getting raped after just seeing, like, their brothers and fathers get murdered right in front of them. This is like the most terrible it's shit like ever, dude. Literally, like imagine, dude. Yeah. the most heinous shit you could probably do. No, literally everything, everything that you probably, even things you probably couldn't. If imagine. if hell is a real place, like this is like hell yeah. on earth. Yeah. yeah. And speaking of hell, a Christian priest in the city named James McCollum estimated that over one thousand rapes occurred every single night during the occupation, and it's estimated that by the end of the whole ordeal, twenty thousand women were raped. Yeah. So some of the most sadistic of the war crimes during the rape of Nanking were the reported cases of fathers being to rape daughters, sons to rape mothers, and pretty much any which combination of family members you can possibly imagine. Yeah, and even the the people that were raped were often killed too. Those numbers don't even we don't even know. Those numbers are so wildly probably incorrect. Yeah, that's of, why the even like the the total body count of this between like what forty thousand and three hundred thousand, it's just we just don't really. We know. don't know. It, 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 the wild thing is that like so a lot of reasons why we those numbers are we don't know is because the sanctity uh, in the Chinese culture and. and uh, purity thing that they have a lot of people didn't talk about this who survived afterwards they didn't yeah. talk about it um and this is also particularly strange i mean as terrible as those things were there's something particularly strange about this they would actually even force celibate monks to rape other people That's so just... intentionally defiling them and also keep in mind a lot of these monks were some of these monks were christian monks as well in addition to like buddhist and uh, you know buddhist they hated monks. that oh yeah yeah yeah, so, so the details of this shit are so gruesome. Like, some of it really is unspeakable, dude. Hey, but we're going to speak on it. So, <laughs> And speaking of unspeakable, get this. There was actually a good guy Nazi in this story. So a Nazi international agent and representative in the city who was named John Rabe. Even Rabe? Rabe? Jean Rabe. John Rabe. I, I, I don't got a good uh, German accent. John Rabe. John Rabe. So uh, this, this John Rabe fellow even sent back word to Germany to complain about the atrocities he had witnessed on the behalf of the Japanese. Imagine that. Imagine that. It's like shit so crazy that the the Nazi general in charge of everything is like, this is out of hand. Yeah, this is too much. This is too much. Like, I know we're Nazis and all, but this we didn't sign up for this. All right, so to, to kind of <laughs> paint a picture of what John Rabe was, was telling everybody was going on back in, in Nanking, here's a letter that he wrote on the 17th of December. Yeah, he wrote this letter back to, to send back to the Gestapo. Two Japanese soldiers have climbed over the garden wall and are about to break into our house. When I appear, they give the excuse that they saw two Chinese soldiers climb over the wall. When I show them my party badge, they return the same way. In one of the houses in the narrow street behind my garden wall, a woman was raped 
and then wounded in the neck with a bayonet. I managed to get an ambulance so we could take it to Kulau Hospital. Last night, up to a thousand women and girls are said to have been raped. About a hundred at Gingling Girls College alone. You hear nothing but rape. If husbands and brothers intervene, they're shot. What you hear and see on all sides is the brutality and the bestiality of the Japanese soldiers. So if you could imagine a world where a swastika armed man is the is the equivalent of like Captain America's shield, that's what was going on in Nanking at this time. Yeah, like people were like raping each other and he was like, oh no, and showed them like the badge and they're like, oh, respect, I guess, and would stop. Like, so again, a, a like a Nazi Batman. This is like... Yeah, he's just breaking up rapes in the street at night. Like, yeah, this is this the most topsy-turvy world shit you've ever heard of. And speaking of topsy-turvy shit, this is an interesting quote. That last line, he says, what you hear and see on all sides is the brutality and bestiality of Japanese soldiers. So that gave us some pause because we were like, the brutality and bestiality of Japanese soldiers, that can't mean what we know it to mean. Yeah, now, like, were right? they out of your fucking animals and were shit? They fucking, they, were they fucking dogs and shit? You're just rolling Meanwhile, up. Just rolling up like, oh, look, I gotta rape something. Oh, bro. Like, oh, there's a dog upstairs, dude. Come on, just go up there, bro. <laughs> I think I saw a cat down the hall. Like, <laughs> that, that can't be. that. I, so I, I, we take that to mean that maybe he just means that they're, that they're, they're being beasts. Being, being beast-like. beast-like. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know, boys. <laughs> this one don't seem to be hidden right in so, my soul. So, so we've had a hero, <laughs> a, a Nazi that saved the day, and an episode where K-Town is calling us problematic. What is going on? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> what are they reaping dogs out here? We gotta do something, baby. We gotta do something. But dog rape is the way we lighten it up. Blink at 182 thought it was all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, baby. Dude, at the end of the day, dude, uh, John Rabe, like people remember this guy, like for being such a good guy that they still have a, a statues of this guy in China today. In China, they were like, we don't care what was going on with all this European shit. This dude saved us. They are like, yeah, fuck it, yeah, fuck, whatever, whatever. But this guy saved my grandma. And what's also interesting about this is, like, you might be thinking, like, oh, wow, we must have had no idea about this at the time. But, like, remember, we were at war with Japan. And when this shit got, like, leaked out to, like, uh, Europe and the United States, everybody knew about this. It wasn't a secret. Yeah, this is just something that we weren't taught in schools because we are now very close allies with Japan. Which, I mean, makes sense to a degree, I suppose. And plus, I mean, that would be a whole day of history class, I suppose, really getting into this. Um, all right, so y'all want to get into some of the other atrocities of the rape of Nanking? I uh, can't wait. Here we go. So perhaps the most sensationalized story of the rape of Nanking was a competition between two Japanese officers to see who could behead 100 people with katanas first. The, the competition was even spread throughout Japanese newspapers as a feel-good piece about the successful takeover of China. So they're like, hey, look at what our boys over here are doing. They're making Japan great again. They got katanas again like samurai, and they're killing Chinese people. They're cutting heads off. Off, no problem and actually the crazy thing too is like later uh uh when when these guys are on trial for war crimes uh as they should be later they were they're like hey man come on it was only like 70 people yeah well although it's interesting because apparently um what they had said originally before the fucking war crimes was they said that um when they had both kind of met up after decapitating a fuck ton of people one of them had like 103 kills the other one had 104 so they couldn't decide who won so they so just we'll just go to 150 yeah so they just increased the conditions to 150 and i don't fucking know who won yeah this just shows you how the disregard for like 
human life that, yeah. that, that they had, like, you know? Yeah. On another occasion, 1,300 Chinese were corralled together and murdered with landmines and kerosene just to kind of, like, see what would happen, basically. I mean, I guess it's the idea of, like, okay, let's see, like, what these machines can do in, like, a full-blown war. Yeah. Um, they would even make the Chinese dig graves for each other, usually just to murder the grave diggers first so they could fall into their own tombs. Fucked up shit. Yeah, just, just, yeah, just like, hey, dig this grave, push you in it, the, the next people, push the next people. It's just like, yeah, just wild shit, inhumane shit. So this is one of the darkest ones. This was uh, from a video we saw on YouTube of like an eyewitness account. So one guy said that when he saw the Japanese stab, like he was like a child, he saw the Japanese stab his mother with a bayonet while she was holding his own baby brother. And when she was stabbed, she dropped her baby and the Japanese soldiers skewered the child in the back and just tossed him away with the bayonet. Yeah, this guy obviously doesn't fuck with Japanese people and I kind of give him a I'm pass. I'm going to give this guy I'm a pass. I'm going to give him a pass, yeah. dude. Like, fuck. What the fuck? Like, he saw the literal worst shit. I think even in that video, which I got to admit, like, watching that video, it's not even a graphic video. It's just a video of a guy talking and and even in subtitles. But I had to look away. I couldn't yeah. even read this shit at a certain point. But he, he said he called them devils. And I'm like, I'm giving you a pass, man. Those yeah, it's it's like, you know, sometimes you'll hear like a, like a grandparent or something, someone a little bit older say something racist. And you're kind of like, hey, 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 cut it out. You know, but for this guy, yeah, I'm going to give it to you. The men who did that were fucking devils, dude. Yeah, those dudes were devils. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah there's, what, what can you do about that? So... Um, the extremes of the massacre began to wane in late February of 1938 as thousands of bodies littered the streets. The main reason for the end of the Rape of Nanking Massacre was due to the efforts of an international committee that forced a safety zone in the middle of the city, much as a result of the reports from John Rabe, the fucking Nazi. Yeah, and the safety zone, we're, that, that term is even used a little loosely because yeah. the Japanese soldiers would find reasons to kind of like... Uh, raid the safety zone for any reason and and take women and children and like just yeah it wasn't exactly a safety zone either yeah i mean and a lot of times like soldiers would go to the safety zone and uh the japanese would say oh we saw a soldier go in there like yeah. they're not supposed to be in there so that would justify them going in and just that would justify a, bunch of people. a raid they would use anything to justify a raid on fucking these quote-unquote safety zones yeah or this quote-unquote safety zone so, in, in, in kind of like the ashes, quite literally and figuratively, of the Rape of Nanking, it's reported that there was a rampant opium addiction throughout the city after the events. Like, the people just started, like, I mean, it makes sense. Like, if you survive, if you survive, you, I mean, sometimes you might because you're actually in intense physical pain because of your injuries. And even if you didn't get injured and you just saw what was going on, your mind's fucked. Dude. Yeah, you might want to block that out. Yeah, and though the city and country are still reeling from the effects of this event to this day, the Japanese government still refuses to officially apologize for this event. Yes. Still! This this has still made tensions between uh, Chinese and Japanese a little heated, still, to this day. Yeah. As yeah. you could imagine. So, moving on with the rest of the Sino-Japanese War during World War II, after the initial occupation of Nanking, Japan had installed a puppet government throughout the region, officially establishing a major chunk of eastern China as Japanese-controlled territory. 
So another particularly insane aspect of the Sino-Japanese War was the establishment of the infamous Unit 731 in 1937, which would go on to conduct bizarre, sadistic experiments on Chinese POWs until the end of the war under the leadership of a microbiologist student named Shiro Ishii, who specialized in surgery and bioweaponry. So this literally was like the equivalent of the Holocaust. Yeah. Like, this was, like, every fucking horror story you've ever heard about the Hulk. That's why it's so upsetting that, like, one in the end, spoiler alert, you know, all these people fucking get off scot-free. Yeah. Everyone who did all these fucking atrocious fucking atrocities. Because these are researchers and, like, scientists, so they're all like, oh, these people are all important. We this never learned about we, we never learned about this in school. Like this is like it wasn't just the Germans doing this shit. It was everyone, man. I was gonna say I had heard like you know I, I've always heard the term Japanese war crimes and I've heard that and like you know maybe even learned a little bit about it, but I never knew the before only, this research yeah. about Unit Seven Thirty One. The only thing I was taught in school about Japanese war crimes were what they did to American soldiers. Yeah, you you learn about kamikazes you learn, yeah. and you learn about Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you yeah. they. They they put them in spike pits and shit in Japan, or like you know, cut their heads off and tortured them in POW camps. They never talk about like the fucking real atrocities that they did. Like, yeah, all that shit's horrible, but like, it we this is Nazi level shit. Like, it's the yeah. same exact thing. This if if you've ever heard of a guy named Yosef Mengele, otherwise known as the Angel of Death, this is this is basically the exact Japanese equivalent of that crazy Nazi scientist who would also do bizarre experiments and did a lot of the similar type of stuff. Um, so, to get into it, Unit 731 was actually Shiroishi's second secret testing facility in China after some escaped prisoners from the first one, which had been founded in 1931, had spread word of the atrocities being committed at the original facility. So, this is this is the second one of the whole yeah. thing. Another one. Yeah, your boy was, uh, like we said, he was, uh, he was into surgery and microbiology, a deadly combination. So, he was already fucking dabbling in these dark arts already and wasn't quite as tight with it as he became with Unit 731. So stories got out, shit leaked, and it wasn't looking good. I think to like to them, when they probably did the first one, they're like, yeah, yeah, this is what you can do to POWs. They're prisoners of war. We can do this. But do then like the, want. But then like other people were just like, bro, like, yeah, it's a war and all, but you can't be doing this. Yes, these are humans? Yeah, they're still <laughs> human beings. Yeah, what are you doing? So the official name of the new, massive, 150-building facility was the Epic. Epidemic Prevention and Water Purification Department. Wow. That doesn't sound bad. Yeah, a totally different name. It was the exact opposite of that. They actually caused <laughs> epidemics and, dest- and destroyed water. Um, so this place was made to house up to 400 prisoners at a time, POW specifically, and 4,000 Japanese researchers who would conduct these experiments on Chinese, Russian, and even some American uh, prisoners of war. Yeah. The whole term Maruda or logs comes from this place. When they were building it, which was a totally top secret uh, project when it was being built but there would be log trucks coming through this part this was in Manchuria where there would be log trucks coming through this part of town and the rumor through the villages and stuff was that there was a log factory that yeah. they were building and the logs were the people yeah they, it kind of became the joke where people would say things like oh how many logs have we cut down today ha ha yeah. and yeah. like they're talking about how many people got like killed yes yeah. literally dehumanizing people making them pieces of wood yeah all right so y'all ready to get into some of the experiments at unit 731 oh. <laughs> 
Here we go. All right. So one such test was to chain naked prisoners outside in the freezing cold to give them frostbite on purpose. Eventually, this method was further perfected so that they could simply just place prisoners into a super into super freezers that would give them an even more intense case of frostbite even faster than simply leaving them outside. The shitty thing is that there were like a couple places like this, but Unit 731 mostly researched frostbite and like cholera and uh, a couple other things like that so a lot of frostbite experiments going on here they're thinking like okay how can we survive if we get into russia yeah and they're thinking how can we unleash pandemics on two other countries which again we'll get into that in just a minute um, so sometimes with this specific experiment, they would even simply observe what would happen as the frostbite thawed out, but it's also reported that they would sometimes just strike the frostbitten limbs with sticks and even melt them with hot water or even fire. Yeah, they they really wanted to understand frostbite in and out, so they would do these experiments where they would freeze someone's arm, and just when it would start to freeze, they would chip the fucking ice off, pour water on it again, let it freeze some more, and beat it. Until and I think they even had to like they had like a rule of thumb of when an arm was frozen all the way through or like when you're beating it when it sounds like a fucking piece of wood it's then solid it's thing. solid frozen and then now we can get to experimenting and by the way with everything that like with this and everything we're about to talk with forward there was no anesthesia whatsoever they always wanted to know uh, what it was like in an actual environment they never they thought anesthesia would like some way impact like the the observation or something yeah, like that the, the really coldest part of unit 731 is just the like cruel scientific pragmatism of everything that they did yes. they didn't want to dilute any of these results whatsoever so whatever that entailed whether it caused pain to the subject or not giving uh, anesthesia so they can they didn't they wanted these results a hundred percent pure so actually even weird side note because these results were so important the standard of living there was actually all right other than the experiments yeah they were actually in nice clean facilities and fed decently because they couldn't have like a malnourished patient because that would fuck up the results mm. it's so mm. it's this really evil like l logic that they had that just like made it so much worse for these prisoners i mean one other side note uh, we got a lot of um they were reading a lot about like before they started their whole industrial revolution like a lot of their books were like medical books from like the dutch and stuff yeah, yeah. we talked about well, that. so western civilization i mean we're sitting here calling them monsters for doing this shit but Colleges up in Boston, Massachusetts that revolutionize reproductive medicine and pregnancies in the United States as late as like the early 1800s were doing this, this exact thing to yeah. slave women. Yeah. Like this is something we've always done. It's. Yeah, I think you're right. They, they really, the world is shit, dude. They they took a they took a, a picture out of like that Enlightenment era scientific playbook. They were like, look, the only way to find out more stuff is yeah. to do terrible things, and it just happens to be that I don't really think we learned fucking shit from any of these experiments. <laughs> um, maybe some of them, I don't know. But I mean, like, what do you what what is what are you really gonna learn from like breaking someone's arm off that's frozen solid? Like, I, yeah. I, it's how fucked it breaks, up, but there like, are it's fucked up, but there are things you can learn at that time. It's, Especially, not, we could learn nothing from that today. Today, we could do all types of shit that would give us all the information that we need uh, for a control experiment on whatever frostbite does. Back then, the data that they wanted to get, they didn't care about going around it the hard way. It's like you, you can't, you can't uh, 
they you can't, you can't they look lab for, rats. You can't look for something without knowing like what you're like looking for, yeah. kind of in a way. You know, they're just kind of like, let's just do stuff, and maybe we'll find some interesting information, and we'll find something new. And um, honestly, I, I can't speak to it honestly, but I, I feel like we probably show a little more sincerity to fucking lab rats today yeah, than what honestly. they were doing with these people in Our, year 731. They would also impregnate women... After giving them diseases such as syphilis to see how it would spread to their own children. And this is what I'm talking about, about that evil pragmatism where they're like... A whole child's life is to be a test. As a fucking experiment, just to see if this disease that we've infected the mother with will transfer through childbirth. Yeah, and naturally... How fucked is that? And naturally, they just discarded the kids after they were born. They're not like... If if they're this inhuman, they're not going to say, Oh yeah, here's your baby, now raise your syphilis baby. They just killed them. And usually killed the person who had the baby. It said that there was a lot of babies born at unit 731 but uh i guess you could imagine how many came out yeah another test was to dehydrate victims and inject them with seawater which that's just kind of a weird one i don't even know what they were doing there well i mean saline is salt oh yeah for saline yeah Yeah, Yeah. to see if they could replace like you know uh saline like yeah because normally like if you lose blood or something they start pumping you with saline so that like your body Maybe we can that's just use seawater. There's like this yeah. scientific like logic that's just like it's like you don't do this. With you don't experiment on people like this, dude. Yeah. Um, researchers would also test new types of gases in the gas chambers. So they were seeing what Hitler was doing, and they were like, "All right, we can get on that too. Let's get the best gas, though." They also did uh, decompression chambers. Yeah. So like basically, they would put somebody in a chamber and fill it with air, like an airtight chamber, fill it with like air, so like the psi would go crazy. And pretty much just, like, implode the people to where, like, their intestines would just, like, explode out of them and shit like that. Their eyes would burst. Like, you just have all... Like, it's like being, like, underwater. Like, you have to be in a submarine because of all the pressure from the water. Like, they were doing that to people on land just to see, like... How much pressure How much pressure your body could handle before it fucking exploded. This was, like, just as evil as some of the shit that was happening in Nanking years before... But in a more calculated, yeah, like in, way, in, like in this like weird calculated way. Exactly. Like Nanking was what happens when uh, sociopathy runs rampant in a military force, like kind of group think, like uh, sociopathy. Um, but this is what happens when you know that group think sociopathy happens with people in the sciences. Another group of people who part of their job is essentially to kind of put the person aside. I mean, both scientists and military both had that similar kind of uh, uh, position of having to kind of disregard human life sometimes for what they do and not think about the person, just think about their goal. And this is what happens when they go crazy. Um, so another thing they would do, uh, and this is some real Resident Evil shit, man. They would cut off and reattach limbs and organs from different people. Yeah, they were trying to do some fucking Frankenstein shit. Yeah, dude. straight up, straight up. They would also test new methods of surgery for healing wounded soldiers by intentionally shooting prisoners just to remove the bullets, or they would even just cut off limbs without anesthesia to study the rate of blood loss. Yeah. So again, all stuff that's meant to be practical in the greater war effort. And this is all like fucking like young ass medical students and shit. Like some of these some of these people doing this shit was their first time working on anything like medically or something this is how they learned and like the stories of those people came out years and years later but that's crazy you're going you finally fucking made it to med school and you're working on a fucking live human body attaching a dead arm to it 
I think like when you see and like, then you're supposed to think that's normal. And that must be so. That must have been such a trip because like for them, like they're like you said, they're going through college, they're doing all this stuff, and they're like, yeah, you know, when you get out and they're in the field, it's wild, man. This and you go out to this field, shit, yeah. and you're like, I guess this is what we do in the medical field. Yeah, I guess we you just... don't know. Like you, you, you made it to the top of your class, and then they send you to Unit Seven Thirty One, like Jesus. to like get that that good knowledge, dude. This is like horrible. So this is another one of the more famous ones, and there is actually a – you can find a picture of this online. Researchers would also intentionally infect prisoners with diseases and conduct vivisections to see how their internal organs would react. Yeah, they so they would, like you said, infect prisoners and stuff, and then they would dissect these prisoners, multiple prisoners, because they wanted to see how it looked on the inside for each different stage of this infection. Yeah. So, like, multiple people would be killed just to see – uh, how this infection or this fucking uh, disease work through the body, like, you know, through time. And what's really crazy about this is, like, eyewitnesses would talk about how, like, when this was going down. Because, I mean, for those who don't know, a vivisection is means that you're doing surgery on someone while they're alive. And apparently, like, they would talk about how there were just deafening screams from these people. As you can imagine, they're just screaming, screaming, screaming until they eventually just kind of pass out. Pass out, yeah. And it was supposed to be, I mean, as you can, again, completely imagine, a truly horrifying sight. But again, like, the people that were doing the surgery are like, this is what, this is for science. So they oh, just yeah. kind of, they, again, just kind of detached from it. So I can, I can kind of speak on a personal note for this because, like, I literally, like, like two, three weeks ago, a dog came in that had disemboweled itself after its spay. Yeah, you're like a veterinary technician, uh, basically. Yeah. Um. So, like, I literally, this dog had gotten spayed. So, like, they cut into the abdomen and they suture it back. They removed the uterus and they suture it back up. This dog ripped out a suture so and Ugh. tore into it. And its entire gut, all of its guts, Jeez. intestines, kidneys, all that is hanging out of this dog. And, like, this dog, like, I had to bring it inside and, like, we had to, you know give it meds to like calm it down and stuff. But like, I literally saw like the agony of like what that would be like in this fucking dog's eyes. And like that shit, like I still like, I've been doing this shit for like 15 fucking years. And I have done a lot of like, seen a lot of fucked up shit, but like, that was probably one of like the hardest things I've seen. And I still wake up like three, four weeks later, like just to that image in my head. And, like, to imagine, like, people doing this to another human being, like a child or some shit, is just, like, I, I, I can't fathom that depravity of, like, humanity to do something like that. Like, that's, like, it's 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 beyond fucked. Beyond fucked. Man, after this episode, I'm about to go home and watch some fucking hockey or some shit. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm about to do something to This fucking... is, like, like I, I looking into a dog... And seeing the level of fear in like that dog's eyes is like I can't I, I I couldn't imagine like what a human would be going through. Hey, uh, make sure to like us on uh, Facebook, <laughs> Instagram, like and subscribe. Check out the Instagram memes, y'all. Memes, it's fun there. We promise, <laughs> it's fun. So some of Ishii's experiments would even be used by the Japanese military, such as his test of bubonic plague on prisoners, which would then be dropped on entire areas throughout China to enforce controlled pandemics. Yeah, so he would he would like take plague-ridden rats 
and they would breed them or they would take fleas and breed them on these plague-ridden rats and then release the fleas in these villages and areas. It was like some really like playing God in the most evil way. Yeah, dude, that's insane. And for those of you who don't know, the bubonic plague, that is like the one you know commonly associated with the Black Death, which killed a third of the entire European population in like the mid-14th century. Like this is like the, the one of the most ugliest and most uh, contagious diseases known to mankind and it would just wipe out entire communities throughout china without a bomb they would just fucking enforce a pandemic on the people and i don't got much experience on the bubonic plague but we did live together in a or an apartment that eventually got completely flea infested yeah dude you can't fuck once you if, imagine if and, all those fleas had the bubonic plague dude like, yeah. that's why that was my only thing when i was hearing about norfolk this would be like, down I was afraid about the fleas getting out into the apartment complex. Bro, so imagine like fleas only have a ninety-day life cycle. Like, yeah, if you can but you can get a gang of fleas in no time. Yeah, but if you if you put your proper medications on your animals, you are not going to have that. Problem. We were not putting proper medication <laughs> on shit back then. Yeah, right? we were we were pissing in, our, in like <laughs> on like our scars, thinking they would help. We would like pray or like bleed each other out. Like, oh, if they, gotta bleed them out. Get the plague. There's uh, too many humans in this one. We'll have to yeah. leech him. We'll have to bleed him. <laughs> have to leech him. Have to bleed him. He's got man. too much pus in him. <laughs> the spirits have Dude, got that, him. That's still like that. That literally was the thing. They're like, ah, oh, there's too much pus in this man. We have to bleed him. <laughs> yeah. uh, this pus spirits have gotten him. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, to kind of come back around, like, yeah, like they would just drop. The, this was the craziest thing to me when I was learning about like all of these things. Like everything else was super fucked up, obviously, but something is just wild that they would just be like, fuck you, and just drop fucking like rats plague rats they were just like crop dust communities in china that's so wild to me just a whole village fuck y'all yeah like let's see what this plague do yeah an entire community and we're going to get to the death count later but i mean as you can imagine this is a true genocide of china like this is that is what is going on once again i mean like we said be sure you they did not see these people as people yeah so we're gonna kind of wrap up a bunch of the fucked up shit and you know we're actually gonna, gonna God. we're gonna kind of zoom ahead a little bit to kind of give you an idea of what happened as a result or a happened to everybody after unit 731 because we don't want to talk about this again later so um uh ishiro ichi the the leader of unit 731 would later be captured by the americans yeah! after world war ii after the japanese surrender hell yeah um but uh. he struck a deal with the u.s where he would be granted total diplomatic immunity in exchange for all of his research because the U.S. believed it would be useful in the Cold War with Russia. We're going to need that data. We need that information on that frostbite for these Ruskies. Yeah, so we just gave him... Yeah, exactly. We gave him a total <laughs> pass. And this all this information will not be publicly known until the 80s, but Shiroichi died in the 60s of cancer. Not even, not firing squad, not fucking crucifixion or being boiled alive or some crazy yeah, he didn't horrible death he deserved. He just died like a regular old bitch. He I didn't hope that motherfucker couldn't piss for like fucking weeks. Well, like, it was throat will, cancer, so I hope uh, it hurt real bad. Uh, I mean, yeah. But but yeah, we 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 gave him some kind of immunity, a bunch of these scientists immunity for this fucking information, and I just wish we just fucking fuck them and took it. Yeah, me. at least if you needed that bad, just fucking take it, dude. Like fuck, like why are we like being diplomatic with like monsters? Well, yeah, with fucking devils, dude. Like come on, man. <laughs> and and so many of the researchers and doctors at U at seven thirty one would actually go on to work in esteemed positions throughout Japanese universities and hospitals, and Japan still 
still officially denies all of the events of Unit 731. And they definitely don't teach it. They don't teach this <laughs> or the Rape of Nanking. It's completely like you don't teach that in Japanese schools at all. Not a happy ending in the case of the Unit 731. A lot of these fucking people lived, to, lived long, prosperous lives, better than you and me. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're ready to get a little bit out of that hole and into World War II. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so by 1940 and in the middle of the Second Sino-Japanese War, Japan joined the fascists in Italy and the Nazis in Germany to form the Axis powers who were all united in their quest for world domination and the resistance against the snowflakes and the allied powers of the League of Nations, thus fully igniting the full scope of World War Two. So just for context, for a timeline, all of these awful things were happening before World War yeah, II truly, truly broke out. Yeah, just before World <laughs> War II. They were on one. Yeah. So while the Italians and Germans were fighting off the Allies in Europe and Russia, Japan's job was to take over all of the originally uh, the Allied-occupied colonies of the British, French, and Dutch throughout Southeast Asia and the islands of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, so sweep up all these little islands, Japan. We like, know you're good for it. Yeah, like, look, we're fighting the, the British, French, and Dutch and all those assholes over here, so y'all gotta fight their colonies over there. And I didn't really realize this. I didn't really realize that that was, like, what Japan was actually doing. They were specifically going against Italy and Germany's enemies, like the European colonies in Southeast Asia and the islands. Hey, it's gang, you know? Your enemies are my enemies. Yeah, pretty much. And they're already out here, and we can use those resources, so it's nothing. Yeah, so they were all out just fucking around, thinking that nobody could stop them. Um, but... While Japan was working its way through the Asian colonies in the Pacific, they noticed a little island called Hawaii, which was being occupied by another allied colonial power, the United States, who had actually not yet entered World War II. The Japanese decided that the U.S. was no better than those European-occupied colonies, so on December 7th, 1941, they decided it would be a great idea to invade and attack Pearl Harbor. So there's a little more to this than just that. Like, yes, that's a dumbed down version. <laughs> but but I mean, obviously, there's a little more to the to anything we talk about than what we talk about. But this specifically was actually uh, there was a multiple attacks on this day in uh, in the in the southeast Pacific. They or, wanted to like overwhelm the U.S. forces because they knew that yeah. the U.S. was like they knew what we could do. We weren't in the war yet, but they were like, Ugh, like they were already uh, doing attacks on multiple islands in the area. The U.S. was putting all types of sanctions on Japan because Japan was on their imperial fuck shit at this time. And even though we weren't in the war, we're at least not fucking with you. Yeah, we're 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 in the war economically at least. We have so, our allies, and we're only helping them. I mean, at that point in the world, we had probably more resources than any other country combined. Yeah, and We're Japan is and Japan is not a resource They're rich country. They're a small island. Yeah. yeah, a lot of these even back before where we're at now, a lot of these original takeovers were because of resources. They were yeah. like, look, we need Korea, we need this because you guys have fertile land and we need those resources that we don't have. But anyway, they were already attacking multiple places on this day and America's putting all these sanctions on us. We can't get the things we need. Fuck you too while we're at it. 
You know, you're not even in the war. We started selling uh, steel to uh, England and stopped selling it to Japan. So a smack in the face as far as Japan is concerned. Yeah. So we'll smack you, we'll spit in your face while we're spitting on these other little uh, islands out in the area. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a twofer for Japan. Yeah, and I, I apparently another, like, a big part of it was, like, yes, there was, like, there's so many, like, big reasons, but in terms of, like, deciding, like, when was the right time to strike, like, yeah, they said that they wanted to have it all... For one, it was all secret. We all know that. Pearl, like, it was a surprise attack. But yeah, they attacked a bunch of different islands because they thought, okay, maybe if we just completely overrun them, like right now, in like like today, like in a day, in a in a few days, then maybe we can have a strategic advantage and and beat them to the punch before that they can prepare for a full scale war uh um, full-scale assault yeah yeah yeah. so the attack on pearl harbor officially gave the united states a good reason to enter the war so we're there boys we're locked in locked and loaded so while the u.s did not initially want to get caught up in another world conflict our unique strategic position as being so far away from any of the direct conflict of world war ii allowed the u.s to power the massive military military industrial complex at home to make machines that would fight overseas finally turning the Tide of the conflict in the east against Japan, but also against the fascists and the Nazis in the west. So that's a that's a pretty uh, look, baby. We did it. We're relying on the laurels of uh, World War One. We're doing great. We're looking good. We're doing good. We didn't need to get in some fucking European battle. At yeah, the we time. we just we were like, all right, the depression was fucked up. We're kind of doing a little bit better. All right, check us out. We're not gonna send steel. How about instead of fighting all this shit, we won't send steel to Japan. Yeah, is that good? Is that good enough? And they're just getting bombed the shit out of in like France and like England and like all throughout. But when like they, when Europe they... and China's getting fucking like pandemics on them, and the U.S. is just like, we won't sell them steel. And even after Pearl Harbor, when we got involved in the war, we're like, hey, at least it's not here. Yeah, Yeah, even still, like, it it really is crazy. I mean, we could talk all day about, like, how what the United States did in World War II really kind of reshaped the entire, like, infrastructure of our country. Our country is still essentially based around bolstering a military-industrial complex. Like, that is kind of the general organization of, like, our country. That's our role on the planet, which is basically, it's all started because of World War II. But, you know, maybe that's just a whole other episode into itself, That's right? something entirely different. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that could be its own, yeah. Yeah, so, again, while you could spend an entire career or lifetime studying every aspect of World War II or even just the conflict in the Eastern Theater specifically, we will go ahead and say that the war against the Japanese was particularly fierce as the Japanese warrior culture was an intense threat to be reckoned with, most notoriously through the infamous kamikaze attacks. Yeah, these guys, just like we said, with the samurais... These guys are willing to kill themselves for the cause yeah, or so, for honor. So what is a kamikaze ca- attack for anybody that might not know? It's a suicide attack. It's a suicide attack. They would use these planes and they would just fly them into the ops. Yeah. Just directly in. Goodbye, touche amour. We're flying right into you. My life doesn't matter if I can take out 10 of yours or 20 or 100 of yours. Well, yeah. it wasn't. it also wasn't just limited to planes. They... Kamikaze attacks were infantry too. Like they oh, would shit. run at you with gun bayonet on, guns charged straight into a pl- platoon, fire and trying to take out as many as they can before they go, or popping pins off of grenades and running at you. Like they, it, it, this just speaks to that warrior culture. Literally like suicide bomber, like uh, Middle East terrorist shit. Like yeah, it it's was, an honorable to them. It was an honorable way to go because they were fighting for yeah. their country, their for their emperor. 
um, Hirohito. I mean, that was it, it, it's it's a again. This is something that we could spend so much time trying yeah. to break down the psychology of the Japanese, like the Eastern the Eastern theater in general. Uh, but to kind of wrap up this particular Even portion, after uh, Germany and Italy had long surrendered, Japan was still fighting like hard, and yeah, we were taking heavy casualties in every fight. Yeah, well, well, the Allies lost thousands of casualties in the Pacific Theater. The Chinese alone lost between fifteen and twenty million people. The vast majority of them being civilians. So they're fighting this giant war. They're killing without impunity. Not only in China, but other uh, Southeast Asian countries they killed a lot of people i mean and if it wasn't for what happened in the holocaust and what uh stalin did this would be considered the greatest atrocity in human history it's the, it's the third place it's yeah. just, this this one gets the bronze for <laughs> for atrocities for worst shit ever yes yes um all right so to kind of wrap up world war ii you know what we got to get into so amidst the u.s's mass industrialization of war machines throughout world war ii they had also begun the manhattan project a coalition of military personnel and scientists who were trying to make working on dr manhattan something lethal yes yes from from, uh the watchman that blue dicks everywhere (laughs) uh so they were trying to make a bomb to end all bombs you know the story they were trying to uh, prepare a bomb just in case like things got really out of hand and for the most part they Uh, assumed was it really just in case I mean that's that was the idea. That was the idea of the whole thing. It was like, okay, if the, if the Nazis, the Italians, or the Japanese uh, actually start to win, we want to be the one with the bomb. We want that smoke. Yeah, and it, it makes sense. I mean, overall, and and the thing is that a lot of them didn't fully understand the full power of this thing. Like they had seen tests, but they didn't really fully know. But they knew, even from seeing it from like a mile away, you saw that those tests explode in the desert or the the ocean, and you're like, this will do a number. Yeah, on someone. this is extremely destructive. Yeah, and they actually, it's it's generally considered that they made it, assuming that they'd have to use it on like Italy or Germany. Uh, but by 1943, the Italian fascists had surrendered in World War II, and by March of 1945, the Nazis had followed suit. However, even with the fall of their comrades, the Japanese simply would just not stop fighting to surrender, um, despite their inevitable failure. Surrender just wasn't their style. Yeah, they're not going to do that. No, and uh, un- very unlikely. Yeah. So after intelligence had estimated that continued war efforts against the radical Japanese army could cost up to 1 million U.S. lives, in the summer of 1945, the U.S. offered Japan one final opportunity to surrender, lest they face a, quote, prompt and utter destruction if they continued fighting. However, Japan refused. Well, Japan's like, dude... All right, you're bombing us every fucking day at this point. We yeah. don't give a shit. Yo, you're going to drop another big bomb on us? Okay, whatever. Yeah, they had no idea of the, the capacity of this thing, the power no. of this thing. It is interesting. We barely did. It is interesting, though. Apparently, like, the United States, like, we kind of gloss over this, but the United States was bombing the shit out of Japan throughout this whole thing because that was, like, their, like, way of being like, bro, stop, and they would just level entire cities, like, completely destroy cities. Um, but usually what they would actually do is they would have... Um, uh, planes that would drop these little like uh, these little pamphlets or like things that would tell people like, hey, we're about to bomb this place. It was kind of supposed to be like a somewhat humanitarian, nice thing to do in the face of something that was obviously very destructive. But interestingly enough, for the bombs that we're about to talk about, they did not do that. They just did not give them any type of warning besides that, that those those surrender offers. So. 
And this is it. This is like one of the biggest things that happened in human history ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so here we go. On August 6th, 1945, at 8.15 in the morning, a U.S. B-29 bomber dropped a 9,000-pound atom bomb, nicknamed Little Boy, over the Japanese island of Hiroshima, killing 80,000 Japanese people instantly, and an additional 60,000 soon after, destroying half of the entire population of the island. 8.15. Now... The really wild thing about this is that the, the uh, little boy or fat what was this one? The first one was little boy. I think the little second boy, one was fat boy. I'm not sure. At, at eight fifteen, they dropped little boy. Now this was at the same time as the original bombing of Pearl Harbor. Wow, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. So it was like you want to talk about petty, dude. Dude, this is like <laughs> this is like it makes me think of like with nine eleven, right? Like three. Like uh, um, less than a little bit less than three thousand people died, which is of course very tragic and sad. But like our revenge killed like thou hundreds of thousands of civilians in the Middle East. So like it's kind of crazy when, like I mean I'm not saying this from like a from like a yeah don't fuck with this type of perspective, but like, really the U S is the ultimate modern country that like you just really don't want to fuck with, man. I'm not saying that as like a good thing, like giving them credit, but like it's just a fact. This was like. Like, I don't think, like, people really, like, understand, like, how insane that is. Like, in a split second, 80,000 fucking people lost their fucking lives. Like, that never before on in the entire history of humanity has something like that ever fucking happened. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I mean... People have committed genocide and killed massive amounts of people, but it, it takes a lot of time. This is, I mean, it's, it's, that's the insane thing is like, this can just wipe out entire cities in seconds. Um, so despite the bombing of Hiroshima, the Japanese still refused to immediately surrender. So the U S bombed the Japanese Island of Nagasaki just three days later, resulting in the death of another additional 74,000 people. The fat man. Yeah, I think that yeah, one was fat called, man. Yeah, yeah. The fat, fat man. Boy. Fat boy. Yeah, little boy and the fat man. Yeah, and, and it's important yeah. to mention that these were the only. I mean, I think we all kind of know this, but in case you don't fully realize this, this was the only time that nuclear weapons have ever been used in world history, so far. Hopefully, never again, man. Like that's just so like. We crucial, pretty much dude. we still live in a perpetual cold war. When you think about it, as long as nuclear weapons exist then we will continue to exist. And I remember there's like, there's some scientist who after he had created it, um, he, I mean, a lot of the scientists went on to show a great amount of regret for what they had done. Um, so like, I remember there's one scientist who said that like humanity will not continue to evolve, uh, to, to live with the existence of the bomb um, until humanity has in evolved. Like this is something that like, it does not take much to trigger someone doing something like this. And you know, that's that's a weird thing. I mean, obviously, we could sit here all day and, and have the debate of the century, talk about whether the bombs were justified or not. But, hey, the Pandora's box is open. So whether even if you're on the side of like, hey, like we had every reason to to use them, there's certainly an argument for them. They did essentially stop the war. But like that box is open now, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. You, you know, what's weird. All of this because we wanted to watch Godzilla. <laughs> That's all we we, we literally were like, hey, let's do Japan. We want to watch Godzilla. Yeah, we did a Godzilla episode. We were like, 
wow, Japan's really cool. Let's do a whole <laughs> two-part episode and focus on nothing but Japan for a month of our lives. <laughs> Mm. Fascinating stuff. But. The the first episode was a lot more fun than this, dude. We knew what we were getting. Just samurais, just being guys, being dudes, sword fighting and shit. <laughs> this shit, this mm. shit got heavy. We're talking about philosophy. Humanity. I'm pulling, I'm pulling my collar on this one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's let's get on out of it. So I mean, of course, I mean after Japan had finally surrendered to the Allies, thus effectively ending World War II, they were subjugated to the U.S. occupation and control for seven years after the war. And the United, States main, the United States' main goal was to help rebuild the country in order to solidify a strong ally in the East in the wake of the Cold War, but also to forcibly prevent any public acknowledgement or blame of the bombings, essentially muzzling the free press of Japan for, again, seven years. Yeah, Japan, we're going we're gonna to need you to sign this NDA about that shit that we just wrecked your, wrecked your nation with. Yeah, yeah. Don't speak about it, and we won't speak about And actually, in, in, in return, we won't speak about this shit that you did. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of leading into, like, our final segment of the episode. Um, but it is interesting how, like, uh, despite all of the war crimes that Japan committed, we don't really see them the same way that we look at, like, Nazi Germany or, like, Stalin. And I think a big part of that is because we bombed them the way that we did. So it's kind of like a, a weird, basically, like, a, like a, an extreme version of, like, an eye for an eye. Again, not saying that it's right. It's just kind of seems to be the way things went I went feel down. like it's more like, I mean... You can't Japan, talk- Japan was ours. Like, like after the war, like Japan was our little buddy. Like they became ours, and like Russia yeah. was, Russia was evil. Russia and Germany was. We split that with Russia. So like, it's just like you don't talk shit about your little brother. Yeah, right? like I, yeah. I, I feel like it. It was solely out of like a like a like. A selfish reason. Yeah, it was practical and strategic. It was like, all right, these are these because like they're thinking, okay, even though these were like some of our mortal enemies over here, like this was a lot of like this was a, a, a one of our biggest foes of this war. It's like, okay, these are still like the best. This is like the most industrialized country in Asia. We might as well swoop on in there mm-hmm. and just kind of reset their whole system like they pretty much changed the the government up even more to make it more like the uh, u.s and england's um government um and basically just completely restructured the society retrained um what very limited military force they could have um help them uh kind of modernize their business approaches modernize like every aspect of their culture like if the meiji restoration was one thing this was when they were really like putting the nail on the head like we are completely shipping your country and you can't complain about it for seven whole years yeah. yeah yeah and it's interesting to kind of go back to what we were talking about with godzilla godzilla came out just two years after the allies left because you, you think about it japan was not able to process their trauma for seven years like they were not able to process the death of like a massive like the death and destruction of their country until seven years after the allies left and then bam Godzilla comes out, this cathartic work of art manifested by the things and the tragedies of the atomic bomb. Yeah. Um, And also, on a little bit of a side note, the U.S. did also occupy Korea because Japan had, of course, taken over Korea, which resulted in the Korean War, which resulted in the border between North and South Korea. Uh, But you can listen to our North Korea episode for more information on that. I think it's worth a spin. It, It holds up pretty well.
Yeah, it's a little bit older, but it's fun. Um, so it's also worth mentioning that while countless Japanese political and military figures were tried and even executed for their war crimes, Emperor Hirohito was completely acquitted of all crimes committed during World War II and the Second Sino-Japanese War as a condition of Japan's surrender after the second atomic bomb. And he continued to be the emperor of the nation until his death in 1989. That's like their one main condition. And bro just lived until like the late 80s until Taylor Swift was born. Yeah, it's not exactly equivalent, but it's sort of like if Hitler just continued to be the Chancellor of Germany. I was thinking that, like, if after everything, and they were just like, all right, but you know what, Hitler, you're going to get a pass on the back, and you just are still alive until, like, almost the 90s. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, like, you know, like, when you hear about, like, mob bosses going down, but then they, like, they uh, they do a deal when they rat, like, everybody in the organization <laughs> out, well, like, they still come out on top. Shouts to Zakashi 69. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a big part of it really was that, like, for one, Emperor Hirohito, like, he was just the kind of the one overseeing the whole thing. He wasn't really the one making the moves. He was just the one who was like, yeah, like, fuck yeah, Japan. Like, y'all crazy military people. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. The thing is, he never went in to stop any of this. That's- it was it was just like before. Like, he was like an How- emperor just like in their feudal period. He was just a figurehead that sat there and, like, yeah. was the cohesive, like, glued that held everything together, but he wasn't doing anything. Yeah, how many of these shots was he actually calling? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the prime minister... The Daimo was running this shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and eventually, exactly what happened back then happened in Japan, where the military culture overtook the power of the emperor, so really the military was who was, who was at really at fault, but again, the emperor could have stepped in and said, hey, I don't think we should be fucking genociding China. If Emperor Hirohito came in and was like, hey, man, what? Shut this shit down. That would have been all it took. Yeah. I mean, it uh, will actually... not do that. Actually, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tricky, man. I think, that, I think the Japanese emperors have always had a very weird relationship with like the rest of society. Cause they're they're like, just... we have the power to shut this shit down, but if we wanted to, they probably wouldn't listen. Yeah, yeah, I think that's <laughs> that's honestly kind of part of it. But also, it's also just it's interesting to think that like that was a condition of the Japanese surrender. They were like, look, you might have just bombed the shit out of us, and you might bomb us some more. We'll surrender, but you're still, like, we have to have this one thing. We're not going to let you completely eradicate our kind of culture, then they continue to have an emperor. And they continue, they still have one to this day. So while you might think that Japan would be extremely incensed by the, by the damage done to them by the U.S., Japan experienced what is famously known as the post-war economic miracle, resulting in the mass industrialization of technology and an economic strategy based around mass exports of the manufacturing to products to the U.S. So basically, the general military class was dead. The, the, the new group of people that would adopt that same type of mentality, that aggressive mentality, would be businessmen. We industrialized again, bitch. Yeah, exactly. Heavy. Although it's interesting because Japan actually weakened the value of their own money in order to manipulate the national market so that the products could be more affordable to the U.S. So this is a lot of economic shit that I'm not going to be very good at explaining. But basically, um, after World War II, the United States had set up a sort of uh, economic diplomatic system that kind of gave a lot of free passes to countries like Japan because they wanted to kind of involve them with the, the, the party, basically, of like a of a peaceful world they were trying to achieve. So they gave Japan a lot of passes on things, and Japan was able to manipulate their currency, basically, so that they could get a profit for selling goods that they would usually not be able to get a profit from. And it's still something that China does to this day. Sounds like they were cooking the numbers a bit. Yeah, and again, I'm not, I mean, basically, the the, the yen was super undervalued. So, like, if you sold, like, a, a TV 
for thirty bucks, uh, you know, you, you'd have you have to make a certain amount of profit with all the things that go into that with making it. Again, the Japanese don't they're not they don't have many of their own resources, so there's a big process for them to make these products in the first place. They have to get the resources, then they manufacture, then they have to import it. It's a big process and there's a lot of overhead uh, before they can reach any sort of profit. But by lowering the value of their own currency, when those U.S. dollars, those big U.S. dollars, are converted into Japanese currency, it comes out has a lot more. So it sounds crazy and it just makes you realize like wow money is just fake. <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> like when you think about it. Um but they but they manipulated the market and they got a they became a huge industrialized country but by the 1970s Richard Nixon changed the US's post-war era economic policy so that Japan could not continue ripping off the West anymore. Although, yeah, oh man. So although, uh, through some very clever manipulation on behalf of Japanese banks, this did not actually have a major impact on the Japanese economy. They just swagged out of this. Yeah, at least not at first. But yeah, they basically just swagged out through manipulating the banks and the money. At least for the first 30 years or so. Dude, it's so easy being rich, man. So also, around the same time as Richard Nixon in the 1970s, that's also when Japan started to begin their, what we now call, kawaii culture, which, uh, do you kind of want to explain what kawaii culture is, K-Town? Uh, kawaii means cute. It's that cute little pastel Japanese schoolgirl giggling Hello Kitty. We're talking Hello Kitty. We're talking Tamagotchi. We're talking, like, uh, cute little su- dancing sushi pieces, all that sort of stuff. This is the Japan that you know now. This currently. was also the precursor to my favorite era of Japan. Early 90s JDM. Oh, we getting there, baby. We getting there. Um, Just do magic? Japanese domestic market. It was their, oh. their, their, their basically the Fast and the Furious before Fast and the Furious came to America. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so this is actually, this like whole Kawhi thing is, uh, I don't really know how much of a conspiracy this is. I didn't do that much research, but the general impression that I was getting from like a lot of historical sources was that this is considered to be like somewhat intentional on Japan's part in order to kind of like, uh, change the international community's perception of Japan, who they'd originally had a lot of very racist depictions of. They'd seen them as this villainous, crazy warrior culture, but now it's like, no, Hello Kitty, it's all oh, soft. We cute, we cute, yeah. it's all soft, and you know. Oh, so you tell me, so penis so big. <laughs> <laughs> you tell me, historians have to talk about kawaii culture now. Uh, some historians, cool historians. <laughs> God, can you you imagine historians like in our future, like having to go back and like, dude, the shit they're gonna have to cover. Talk about Naruto running or Tide, <laughs> Tide Pods. They're like, and then Naruto's son Baruto came upon us. <laughs> it changed the landscape of society, and he ruled the land. Baru- <laughs> no one likes Baruto. I don't know anything about Baruto. It. I know sucks. like past the name Baruto. I know nothing. <laughs> so Shippuden was a classic, but Boruto sucks. So despite the huge success in Japan's economy and their uh, mounting cultural influence, there was a major economic crisis in the 90s that is believed to be responsible for major social changes in the country. So this is basically like the 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 effects of what Nixon had done to to their economy. It just now kicked in. The banks were not able to put bandages on anymore, and there they are they staved it off for a while, but like in the 90s, it caught up. Yeah, yeah, and and there is a lot of there are a lot of really interesting economic implications to. Japanese society as a result of this depression, but since this is not an economy nerd podcast, we're just going to kind of mention that it is believed to have contributed to the rise of seemingly disenfranchised young men, which resulted in the formation of 2Channel in 1999, which is the forerunner of 4chan and 8chan. And now you're in our our department. Now you're in our waters. Yes, yes. (laughs) 
now we're in like incel world <laughs> or has their known i mean this isn't a direct one to one but in japan this is also when you started to see the rise of otakus otakus is this is this some... Ot- otaku is basically like a shut-in that like lives their life on the internet like they're all about like gaining knowledge and just like living oh, that sounds sick yeah, it, it's. I mean, it's pretty. Dude, cool. I love the game though. It's like they're they're just like they hyper focus on like topics and like try to gain knowledge, but like they're very famously shut ins. They don't really go out into society. They're always on the computer or the internet. All their social interactions are through technology versus like actual human connection, and that's why Japan's like on like a a super decline of birth rate. <laughs> Like they are like they're not fucking. No, Japan is not fucking. Oh. Japan actually like the tourism board of Japan actually paid and completely financed this like Jersey Shore type show. Like I think it was like 2012 or something like that. To get that. everybody horny, basically. To like to like Let's get a bunch of like waters. young women and men to like to fuck work. to fuck. Like they wanted them and like they put them in like a Jersey Shore style house. It was like here's a bunch of booze. Go crazy, y'all are on camera. We want you guys to fuck. This worked in America, and like all the women, <laughs> all the women were about it. They were like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, these dudes are cute," and the dudes were just like, "No," they just like stood in the corner and they were like, "No, nah, I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll just drink and smoke my cigarettes." Wow, yeah. I'll jerk off when everyone goes to sleep. Yeah, yeah, like for real. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's interesting because like apparently like the economic crisis in the '90s kind of like produced a sort of like a lost generation. Like a lot of times when we think of like otaku's or like these kind of disenfranchised men who were raised in this society where they were like told like, "Yes, you're going to do very well. We have a very rich and prosperous nation. We we are the ones that like are." Going you're gonna make a you're gonna make a billion, baby. Basically, you're make a billion. Yeah. But then, like when they all grow up and they're in this shitty economy, they became disenfranchised. They kind of retreated into their holes. They became less like inspired to participate in society. And that's kind of considered a big reason why a lot of the uh, the Japanese media around the '90s is particularly dark. So is this like the incel uh, thing, but instead the Stacy is society? Kind of. I mean, this is 100% the progenitor movement of, like, inceldom. Like, what the way that this, like, what this did to Japan's young men is what the 2008 financial crisis did to, like, our young men and mm. and us to a degree. Or I guess we kind of, I guess <laughs> we kind of didn't become incels, so we got that. But that's also considered a big we reason. Like, there. Yeah. So, so I, I know we didn't really talk about this a lot, but, like, literally, um, I just want to put this in there because I am a car nerd. This period of Japan literally came out was the coolest fucking era for cars of anywhere on this fucking planet. The coolest fucking most badass fucking cars that have ever graced this fucking earth came out in Japan at this time. Because people are wild and people are like, I can like, either be depressed in my hole or I can go drive this car. I can baby. make this car go so early, fucking fast. Early 90s. And like the, <laughs> the cool thing about like Japanese like car makers is like they were all fucking super crazy car nerds. Like... They literally, like, to not shit on each other, like, had, like, a gentleman's agreement to, like, limit, like, how high their speedometers would go so that, like, someone who came out with, like, the the Nissan Skyline GTR, like, it actually went, like, 60 or 70 kilometers kilometers per mile over what its uh, speedometer did because it didn't want to make other Japanese brands look inferior to it. Like, it was just all about some, like, fucking nerds just nerding out, making some dope shit, dude. I love JDM so much. It, it, it is, like, 
There'd be no Fast and the Furious. Like, there'd be no, like, challenge, like present-day Challenger. There'd be no Chargers. This is part of the shit that, like... like this was, like, this revolutionized the car world. Influenced American culture. Yeah, shit. yeah. This was part of that Literally, shit. like, Initial D came out over here, and then, like, two Initial years D. later, um, Fast and the Furious started. Like, there'd be no Fast and the Furious if it wasn't for this era of Japan. Yeah, it's really interesting how, like, while there was this huge economic crisis that was going down, the 90s was when, like... Japanese cultural influence, like, it had already been here for, like, people were watching, like, anime and stuff like that in, like, the 80s and even the 70s a little bit, but in the 90s was when, like, Japanese car culture, it was, Japanese it was anime, pop culture it was it was a pop cultural phenomenon. We're talking Dragon Ball Z, we're talking Pokemon. We're importing car parts, we're importing anime and cartoons, we're importing Japanese culture heavily into our culture at this point and that's where that's where i came in at the beginning of this episode the first part where yes. i was like why do i have this fucking weird uh uh fascination with japan this is why yeah this is the time period that's responsible for the probably the reason you're even listening to this episode because i'm watching dragon ball z without even realizing it and i'm watching it on a sony tv that's why yes, yes. <laughs> again in this room right now there are probably countless japanese products <laughs> it is it is truly like astounding when you I'm think i'm gonna get Get in my my Toyota, drive home to my house, turn on my Sony television, plug in my PS5, and play Final Fantasy before I go to bed tonight. Yeah, a Japanese car on a to go home to play a Japanese video game and on a Japanese the, video game system through a Japanese TV, probably with Japanese produced surround sound system, yeah. right? And what's yeah. more American than that? Yeah, <laughs> like literally, yeah. So it, another, a couple other interesting things that happened in the 90s. The 90s also saw the Japanese prime minister, the new prime minister, the first guy after Haruhito, officially take, he officially took responsibility for wrongdoing, like a very general sense of wrongdoing in World War II. Although people they, weren't stoked on that. Yeah, a lot of people, some like, as you can imagine, more liberal factions were like, yes, this is good. But more conservative factions were like, no, this is like making Japan look weak. This How is many times do we have to apologize? <laughs> yeah, once. <laughs> like, yeah. But what's crazy is they never apologized to China for their genocide. They still not formally apologized for the rape of Nanking. They just kind of said, are bad. That's pretty much it. I mean, yeah, why not? Not even really. They didn't even really say are bad. They're just like, hey, look. Yeah. Time is passing. Time heals all wounds, right? Yeah. <laughs> I hope you had the time of your life. <laughs> I don't know why that fit, but it just did in my Imagine mind. Imagine being a, a Chinese diplomat to like you know that that like uh the the emperor of Japan is about to say something really important. You're like, "Finally, they're going to apologize. We can finally begin the real healing process. And then he comes out, and there's just fucking Green Day playing in the background. He's just like, hey, what's up, bro? <laughs> Yo, On my, my own, here we go. Burn it. <laughs> Burn it. <laughs> my bad, bro. I mean, you know what it is, but I like, I ain't sorry. Yo, sometimes I jerk off, dude. That should be crazy, though. War, right? Yeah, Am war. I right? Yeah, Am that's I pretty right? much what it was, yeah. Um, also, we'd be remiss to talk about Japan in the 90s without mentioning that they also experienced the infamous subway attacks from the Om Shinrikyo cult, which killed 200 Japanese citizens. So they got cults, too. Yeah. Yeah. And this was a big one. I mean, this is like yeah. this is like comparable to like Jonestown, really. This is like that type of level of cult. You know, it just it, it, it killed a lot of people with it was uh, in one shot. Yeah, it was like uh, this uh, nerve gas, this like yeah. nerve agent, and like it was all just 
rooted a lot of it was actually rooted in uh, people who were like otakus um it was it was rooted in that disenfranchisement of japanese culture it was like you can either become an otaku you could become a cool car guy you can work in a big business this is some of that cool. or you can join fucking om shimriki <laughs> This is some of that cold calculation too, the Om Shimriko shit. But that's that could be a whole other episode. Yeah. You know, there's really there's really some shit there. It really could be. Um, so the 2000s for Japanese youth continued this sort of cultural trajectory of uh, has mass rates of depression apparently spread throughout Japan's notoriously intense school system. Some kids would and still even to this day refuse to go to school entirely out of fear of both the intense curriculum as well as rampant bullying and apparently even rampant sexism in the school. So there's still kind of a, you know, just like, again, Tough like a lot of other countries, they've got their own brand of problems still. And it's 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 all fucked up. We have school shootings, so I guess, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, we can't really talk. I mean. USA! USA! <laughs> we, USA! We have the guns! Yeah, but Trump stopped all we the school shootings. We have the guns! Oh, Trump did? Yeah, with COVID. Oh, true, true, true. I'm so glad that happened. Yeah. Trump stopped all the school shootings with the COVID oh, hoax. What are you, Canadian? All the skew. All the school shootings. All the school shootings, eh? All right, so to kind of uh, reorient ourselves with modern Japan to kind of conclude this epic journey we've had over two episodes, let's talk about what Japan is like now. So Japan has the third largest gross domestic product, or GDP, in the world, right behind much larger countries and more populated countries like China and the U.S., and they are followed directly by Germany and England. So they're number three compared to China and the U.S., which have drastically bigger populations. They're still number three. Has the like I think per capita, they're basically number one. Um, don't quote me on that. That's just me kind of making an estimate. But um, regardless, they are number three in GDP. I'm going to need to see your data for that. <laughs> so today, Japan is also home to four of the top ten biggest car companies on the planet. That's more than any other country. And this includes companies like Nissan, Hyundai, Honda, and the most profitable car manufacturer in the world, Toyota. Yo, shouts to Toyota. What's your, what's your, favorite, what's your favorite car from any of those? From from okay from Nissan is probably the Cube. I think it's a nice car. It's much more roomy than you think, uh, and it's it's a really comfortable and has great gas mileage. So I, we're just saying what cars we own. <laughs> I like the 2018 uh, Toyota Corolla. My favorite Nissan is the uh, Nissan Skyline GTR R34, midnight purple. There was only a, uh, like 500 of those made. Hmm. They were fucking. They had a touchscreen in like '96. Which was insane. Insane. This reminds me of like how Elon Musk and Grimes named their kid after like a plane that he loved. Yeah. I feel like you're gonna if you ever have a kid, you're gonna be like, what was, what was you, it? You Is don't it, remember you don't remember my kid's name I used to joke about in high school? Skyline what? Godzilla Mason. Godzilla Nixon Mason. Nixon Mason. Godzilla, Godzilla Skyline Nixon. Mason. <laughs> and then my favorite Toyota is the AE86. That sounds I that sounds intimidating. It is. But let's it, just it's keep a, it real. It's a Corolla from the '80s that has flip up lights, and it was probably one of the greatest drifting. Come cars on, of guys! All time. We all know that the Toyota Camry is the most reliable car in the world. Yeah, it so, is the most popular car in the world. Yeah, Toyotas. I mean, I remember uh, I didn't used to own a t- Corolla until like my my most recent car, but I bought it because I used to drive this like uh, company car for like the old pizza place, and like this was a truck that had two hundred fifty thousand miles on it and was still running fine i was like i could have a corolla forever literally forever i remember this toyota commercial from like 10 years ago and it basically said that like 
80% of Toyotas that were made in, like, 1985 were still on the road today. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that's all I need to hear, man. Like, yeah. that's it. They make damn good cars. Although, interestingly enough, most of the other top 10 car manufacturers are actually also from former Axis Powers nations, including Volkswagen, Daimler, Bayerich. Bayerich. Uh, who are, all three of those are from Germany, and then there's Fiat from Italy. So, to kind of break that down... I'm like, so sick of seeing Bayerichs every day. Yeah, Dude, what the fuck is that? That's, I think, I, I think, I think uh, well, those companies are like the bigger companies that own uh, or companies like BMW and like some other like... Uh, Okay, okay. Yeah, like they they like some of them. Like do they're like, like GM. Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. Like fucking. They, they're so subsidized. We don't even know the name of the like actual mother yeah. company anymore. <laughs> exactly, but I think it's very interesting how eight out of ten of the top uh, uh, car manufacturers in the world are all from former Axis Powers nations. And um, I was talking to someone about this who uh, seems to have a little bit of know how about this. I don't don't quote me on this, but. They're making the point that it was like, okay, well, these countries had made these huge industrialized war efforts, and then um, after World War II, they were said they were told, hey, you can't do that shit anymore. You can like you can't have a standing army anymore. So what do we do with all these fucking factories? Bomb them. <laughs> Make fucking cars. And the remaining car manufacturers, Ford and General Motors, are the only American ones in the top ten. So Japan and Germany both have more of the top ten car manufacturers of the world. So we think of ourselves as the car boys, and yeah, we made the assembly line, but like we ain't really... Uh, yeah, but a Mustang fucking sucks. It's the worst car ever made. And exactly. Elon Musk almost doesn't sleep or eat at all, so he's coming for him. Just give him a couple more years. Give him That's a few true. decades, and we'll see what's what. That's true, honestly. They're going to be the Apple of cars, eventually. Yeah. Um, so moving on, Until uh, the Apple car comes out. So moving on with like technology companies, Hitachi, <laughs> Sony, and Panasonic are all in the top 20 list of biggest tech companies in the world with South Korea in second place with Samsung and the U S in first place with none other than Apple. Yeah. Dude, Hitachi, I can't even tell you what specifically they make. Like, literally everything? They make, yeah. yeah, they make TVs, they make stereos. Cameras. Drills. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, everything. Actually, like, literally yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, man, is, is like... Okay, so this is this is the this best. This is quote. a Hitachi microphone we're speaking on right now. Yes, like exactly. It's got Hitachi guts. It's it's <laughs> wild, man. So this, I, I was trying to find a way to like encapsulate the way that like Japan, like their intense um, economic influence on like our country, like how so many of our products are from them. And speaking of Apple being the number one uh, technolo uh, technological company. Um, I actually found a quote from none other than Steve Jobs, who was talking about Japan's industrial might. Japan's very interesting. Some people think it copies things. I don't think that anymore. I think what they do is reinvent things. They will get something that's already been invented and study it until they thoroughly understand it. In some cases, they understand it better than the original inventor. And I think that quote really fully encapsulates just how, like, they, they're not really, like, making as many new technologies. They just, like, completely perfect the ones that are they're exposed to. Mm -hmm. Which really speaks to like their entire industrialization since the Meiji Restoration and the post-war economic miracle. Two different times they industrialized the country in lightning speed. Yes. Uh, so Japan has also achieved world domination in the video game industry with Sony at the number one spot, Nintendo at the number three spot, Bandai Namco at number nine, and Square Enix at number ten. Um, and to kind of put that in context, the biggest U.S. video game developers are Microsoft at number four. That's the highest one, and it is trailed by Activision, EA, and Take-Two. Yeah, so they're... 
Japan still wants some We the Best shit. They it, just instead of We the Best, it like yeah, because Microsoft it, fucking sucks. Instead of instead of being the best at imperializing and taking over shit, they're just being the best at like you know technology and video games. Yeah, Sony is the number one video game company like mm-hmm. in existence right Most now. Sold consoles of the entire world. Oh uh, God. And finally, uh, anime is one of the largest cultural exports of Japan as the Japanese animation industry uh, brings in around $17 billion a year. Even That was in 2016, so it's likely even more. Yo, what are some of y'all's favorite animes you're watching right now? I'm not really uh. watching anything right now. <laughs> yeah, I got Jujutsu Kaisen, uh, My Hero Academia, ReZero, Starting a Life in a New World, uh, Shield Hero, uh, Attack on Titan. Um, What's your top three anime recs for a new listener Jujutsu Kaisen I cannot stress enough is probably the hardest fucking shit I've watched in the past 10 years I'll have to put that in the episode it is so I have no idea how to spell that it is so fucking good if you like fucking superhero shit it's just some dudes beating the fuck out of some dudes it is so good okay with demons I really like uh, (laughs) I I really like I'm kind of basic I suppose I really like um, uh, pseudo Ghibli movies uh, Hayao Miyazaki I'm a big do, fan do, of that do you like the newest one they did in, uh, in fucking CGI no I, that sounds terrible yeah it, it's fucking awful I know he he's not he didn't direct that I think that was might have been his son there's some other people that are doing all those movies now um, I also really like I mean this isn't really anime but my biggest manga suggestion would be Junji Ito I fucking love Junji Ito I've read like that's like the only mangas I've really don't read don't watch don't watch the animes though they did a whole anime series of his and they butchered it yeah it's it's a little bit it's a little bit cringe like if you really like I really like Junji Ito so I you know I've watched a few of them although they are producing a Netflix uh, uh, short series that's looking pretty promising well, but we'll uh, see Adult Swim's doing Uzumaki yeah that's right? what I'm talking about yeah that's Adult Swim not Netflix. Oh, yeah. You fool. <laughs> Blew it. All right, so this isn't a Jinji Ito podcast. So to kind of wrap up things about Japan for this final, just a final interesting mention that you might want to know, Japan has continued its imperial line with its current symbolic leader, Emperor Naruhito, who is still believed to be the ancestor of the original Emperor Jimmu from 2,700 years ago. Wait, descended from the sun? Yeah. Yeah, well, J- well, Jimmu is someone that descended from the sun. That's still, like, the belief in Shintoism. That's still, like, supposed to be, like, the... I don't really know exactly how many Japanese people actually take that seriously at all. Again, Emperor Jimmu was generally considered a mythological figure. Um, I mean, he's kind of like a like an Adam and Eve type, you know? Okay. Or maybe like a like a like a Moses even, you know, where it's like those yeah, are, those are real, so those exists, are all so, real people. So he existed definitely. Yes. So there might be some wackos who are like, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, dude. Uh, yeah. And he's and this guy's here. He's still the fucking. He's he's who comes from him. Yeah. Dude, Emperor <laughs> Jimmu's bones are buried in uh, in one of the cafoons. Oh yeah, that's where it is. But, but the we, current emperor won't let us go into them. We so can't it, open them. So it makes Sorry. a lot more. It makes a lot more sense that they will not. Imp- I'm gonna it, steal oh- the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> 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 it, it makes a lot more sense that the emperor is the one who makes the call. That's like, no, we cannot go into these and and do archaeological digs because those are my ancestors, man. Yeah, dude, the emperor's new bones. That's my mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. All right, y'all. It has been one hell of a journey, but that is the entire history. 
of Japan. As told from the Good Times gang. Yes. As yes. we see it. A good caveat. As told by the Good Times gang. If you want to know more, I mean, I don't usually, you know, we don't usually mention like all of uh, our sources and stuff, but the History of Japan podcast was a big, um, a, a big contributor to a lot of the kind of, uh, a lot of the nuanced um, information in this. If you want to know more about Japan and you really want to know more in a way that's like maybe a little bit more dry but more academic, I would highly suggest the uh, History of Japan podcast. Absolutely more thorough. Shouts to the History of Japan podcast. Podcast. This guy's been doing this podcast in like 2013, and he's just like dropping episodes currently. Like yeah. his last episode was like on like Friday or something. Yeah, so. this a lot a lot of information <laughs> for this podcast was informed by the first 20 episodes of his podcast, which just kind of covered the entire history. Um, and again, much more detail with much more expert knowledge. Um, but then after that, it's just like hundreds of thematic episodes. Like if you really want to know about Japanese culture and Japanese history, that's a great place to go. Yeah. Um, all right, guys, so there it is, Japan, the entire history. Now we have to wrap it up with the titular segment where we have to ask ourselves, are the good times killing us? Is Japan the entire nation? It's the nation of Japan. Yes, we have to roundtable it out, and this is when we say, is this basically a good thing or a bad thing? Is society, is the world better because of this thing, or is it worse? Who wants to kick it off? Uh, are the good times killing us? Japan. I'm going to jump right ahead in and kick it off because I don't know where any of you guys are going with this. I don't know what angle you're taking on it. And so I'm just going to go ahead and get mine out the way. Yeah, this is the biggest topic we've ever covered. <laughs> yeah, so I've decided to come at this from an angle of... I'm going to compartmentalize it a little bit. Is Japan, the nation, killing us? No. No, the nation of Japan is not killing us currently. I mean, there's a, if we want to talk about nations that are killing us, we could talk about like North, North Korea or some other things. Now, with with that being said, I learned a lot doing this episode. I learned an absolute lot, and um, a lot of the shit from uh, like their, their their World War Two and pre World War Two past, and their you know warrior way and that code and stuff, and the shit from like Nanking and stuff. Oh my god, dude, like that shit, that shit really killed me, dude. And so, I'm glad I know about it, because it's, I didn't learn about shit like that in school, but I will say, uh, Japan's good times in like the early uh, 20th century absolutely killed me. Yeah. So Killed a lot of people. And they killed about 20 million other people. At least, yeah. Less than all we forget, so. Yeah. So the good times aren't killing us. The good times aren't killing us as a whole. Wholesale, no. All right. Um, I'll take it next. Uh, you know, I mean, this this is a tricky one, you know, because yeah, because this is again not only just a country, but it is also a heritage of people, a ethnicity of entire people. We have Japanese listeners, I'm sure. Yeah. So I'm gonna Shouts go. To <laughs> so I'm not gonna do some kind of big like lead up to it. The good times are not killing us. Japan. We, I, I love Japan. Their, their, their influence is mighty. I, I really appreciate a lot of the things I've gained from their culture. I, I participate in their culture a lot through the, the, through the technology I use, through the food that I eat, through the entertainment that I digest, um, through also the, like the kind of what they did to religion, such as Buddhism. I really particularly am a big fan of Zen Buddhism. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, Japan is definitely not killing us. But, yes, uh, it is difficult to kind of um, to look at 
the the history, uh, especially when you look at the early 20th century, but also other periods. I mean, when uh, we didn't really talk about this in the first episode because we kind of wanted to keep it light, but when they invaded Korea um, in the 17th century, early 17th century, there were reports of a lot of the same type of terrible rapes that happened also during the rape of Nanking. But here's the thing is, is like, you cannot, you can separate what, what happens as a result of some kind of uh, a culture that has just a unique situation in a unique place. You know, you can look at how that kind of generates a unique phenomenon. It just tells you something about human beings. You cannot assess whether or not the, the, the Japanese or the Japanese culture is a good thing or a bad thing. It just happens to be that human beings are capable of evil things, and the Japanese were no exception to that. You look at any culture, especially any like uh, like dominant, well, not even any dominant, any culture in the world in some, in some scale has committed insane atrocities against their fellow men. There are just periods of time where... Human civilization goes insane, and yeah. and the psychopaths reign a society. We as um, a nation, as America, we're not exempt from that at all either. Yeah, a, a United States is responsible for what is probably the greatest genocide that has ever occurred in human history, which was the genocide of the natives. It's a little bit different because a lot of that was accidental, but it was also very purposeful, <laughs> and we totally took advantage of it. It's one of those things like when in school, when you're learning about American history, you, you don't want to really bring that up because it's a real buzzkill to say, yeah, then we came over, then we made some tobacco and then we killed everyone <laughs> you know there's it's just that's just a situation with any culture so at the long run i mean i hope that we can by understanding the rape of dan king by understanding unit 731 by understanding some of the darker aspects of this culture um i i think we can gain a greater insight into the human psyche overall the human experience the human consciousness um but if you learn all of this stuff and you take away from this some idea that like this means something about Japanese people that make that anything that makes them like different as human beings, then you are totally missing the point of studying fucking history in the first place. So I just really wanted to clear that up because I know that this can kind of be with a podcast that covers controversial topics, it'd be kind of tricky when you decide to cover an entire history of a country. We just really want to do it. That's we love this country. That's why we did this episode. So absolutely fucking not. The good times are not killing us. I love Japan and uh that's my piece. Um Japanese culture is probably one of the most heavily influenced cultures I have in my life. Like like we were saying earlier, like literally I I work a lot, I come home, I I watch anime and I play video games. Like that those are like Japan's two biggest exports. Like that's like my existence is around those outside of like hanging out with friends and working. Like, that's what I do. That's my free time. Um, I see Japan as a a country that dedicates itself to finding the beauty in everything, whether that be in art, literature, poetry, even death. They, they find beauty in every aspect of life. And it's just a really just wonderful, like, encouraging way to look at life is to find the beauty in things like we, there's so much negativity in this world and the world is so shit. Sometimes it's just, that's just a cool way to look at life. That being said, they heavily contributed to a lot of the shit in the world. And because of what they did, millions of people lost their lives and the face and possibly the fate of our world has been forever put onto a different path because of what we at the time felt was necessary to stop them 
um, it, it caused a ripple effect. I mean, that directly built up the Cold War. It started a whole military-industrial complex. It literally can one day wipe humanity off of the face of this earth from that single moment where we dropped that first bomb at 8.15 in the morning on them. Like, yeah. that literally... Nuclear war at any point in time could just end us all. We're still on the path from that like, moment. Yeah, we're it's still crazy. 2021 still feeling the repercussions from that fucking ripple now. It, I, I can't fathom being in the moment and doing the things that those people did to the Chinese or, like, the women. Like, those were legit monsters. I don't think that defines who Japan is now or who Japan was before that. I think that defined who Japan was in that moment. Um, I don't blame Germany for the atrocities that they committed during world war two. Now I blame the people that did it during that time period. Um, it's not about the journey. It's where you end up. Um, I think the things that happened were horrible, but I, I think you kind of just have to look at it and take those as, yeah, they were horrible things, and now we have examples to never do something like that again. Like, that's, that's the only way you can really look at a history of, like, an entire culture and people. You can't just condemn and condemn everything like, like a topic, like incels. Like, you, we can sit here all day and just condemn that, but, like, there are so many nuances and different types of people. It's just not fair to group an entire country as that. So, I mean, as much as like, I love to like just scream and shout at people and say shit's fucked up and like, fuck you. Like I can't do that with like a whole group of people. I think that is inherently like fucked up in itself. And especially with like the climate where like Asian people are just like, getting shit on non fucking stop. And like, we're having to like really put out hashtags of stop Asian hate like, yeah, as a yeah. scapegoat for the whole as a pandemic scapegoat for anything. Like, I yeah, just think it's, right. I think it's like a scapegoat to just like, kind of put that onto them. You know what I mean? Put the, put the blame on, put someone. the blame onto Japan for like what Japan did. It was the military leaders and the people running the country. Like, um, and, and the people that did those things, but like those people aren't alive. Those people aren't Japan now. J Japan is different. Japan is, it's a whole new person right now. And I love Japan. I love its people. I love its food. I love its culture. Like, I mean, it's just like, I don't know, man. I just, the good times aren't killing us. Japan. I love you. You got a dark history, but like, so do we. So do we, so does everyone. And like, yep. the only thing you can do from that is learn from it and make sure it never happens again. Yep. Yep. And by the way, I actually love that you actually quoted the fortune cookie that you gave me just before we record this podcast. What? What is My fortune cookie said, um, <laughs> this is actually beautiful because we were talking about how like basic it was, but you actually worked it really well. It, the fortune cookie says, it matters not what road we take, but rather what we become on the journey. Wow. You basically said like a version of that. <laughs> also, know, I, I, like, I like that you mentioned that like, there, like 
Jap- J- that is a big part of Japanese culture is finding the beauty in all things. And the thing is, is like, you know, this is a podcast about controversy. We covered inherently the darkest stuff. That is kind of like the aim of this podcast. It wouldn't probably be as interesting if we covered the uh, development of, or it wouldn't be on brand at least, if we covered the development of all the good things in Japan. Yeah. Like, oh, look at this, when this good thing happened or that good thing, that would become an, um, an art appreciation episode or yeah, an art history like, episode. I feel like it would have been unfair to like the podcast as a whole if we had just like, not done the fucking rape of Nanking. Yeah, Nanking. Like, and that's that's the beauty of of doing a podcast like this is like we're you're already primed and ready for some crazy shit. So we might as well give you some information about some crazy shit that you should actually know because you don't really need to know about adult baby diaper lovers, um, or uh, furries <laughs> and shit like that. Um, but if you do, then listen to our episodes on both of those topics and many more. Um, alrighty, guys. So any any last words? This has been a journey. What a fucking journey. This has been a month. I don't know how to end it. I honestly, like, this episode, like, me talking about some of, like, my personal experiences, like, this has probably been, like, the most depressing episode we've done for me. <laughs> this particular episode, yeah. yeah. I think we got a little deeper than usual. We talk, it's, it's just that this shit all really happened, and it's all really, a lot of that shit's all really It's not just, some goofy shit you can just yeah. crack a joke and tell them they have small penises or anything like we, <laughs> like we did with the flat earthers. Like, you know, it's just, you know. It's a different story. It's necessary, though. It's yeah. necessary, yeah. Yep, you we gotta did talk, about these, even you gotta talk about these things. Like I said, I didn't even know a lot of this yeah. shit, so like I feel like I learned a lot. So like, you and know. you'll probably tell your daughter one day like yeah, this fucked up shit, like, you know. I, I kind of yeah yeah. And people should know about the extent of of human evil because that yeah that's the only way if we if we know what the enemy is and we know that the enemy is truly in ourselves then. And only then can we actually achieve that evolution of a species that we do need to exist in a world that has atomic bombs now. So we did it, guys. That was us. We saved the world. We did it. You know what? Let's pat ourselves on the hey, back. Yo, hey, you know hey. Three cis males coming at it again. Japan. the fucking day. Japan, we got you. We got you, baby. That's it. Um, all righty, guys. And, so- and hey, no accents. Hey. You know what? One single accent. No accents because you know what? That would be racist. And you know what? That's not us. Thank you so much for listening to the Good Times of Conus podcast, guys. Thank you so much for coming on this journey. But yes, if you get any kind of racist vibe from this, if you are a fucking racist, then I kind of hope that you just wind up being very soon very fucking dead. Um, hot take, but The Last Samurai is an amazing film. I've never seen it, actually. It's, it's, it's an amazing film. I love it. Dude, from doing, like, so, like, getting into, like, all of, like, the historian stuff with Japan, like, every time, like, The Last Samurai comes up to, like, historians, they're always like, I won't even give it the time. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's not historically accurate, but it is a, a really good film. I feel different about Tom Cruise nowadays, you know. I yeah, mean, after yeah, after doing Scientology, it's I can't. I mean, I, I hear you, but like you know, hey, he's a good actor, baby. Bush is still selling paintings. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he committed war wartime atrocities for no other reason other than for oil. But hey, well, you know, he's painting, and you know, Michelle Obama's giving him a high five and hugging. So. <laughs> <laughs>